Princess of. No, 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 no! Ah! Hi, this is Dale Lear, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calore computer. It's time to drop your socks, grab your real-time clocks, and let's rock. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world. Welcome to Coco Talk episode 269. We're just going to stay out of the heat today. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the tiny flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world. hello everybody welcome to coco talk so i think for some of our viewers in other countries sir you should explain the uh staying out of the heat uh, like especially with people like nick who you know it's winter right now uh well we've been uh in the uh um 105 110 all week with uh and last night it was humid enough for thunderstorms. Uh, we have a cool front today, which means it's only going to get to 98. Man, you people from Oklahoma are just wine babies. <laughs> Lord, so bad for those people in Texas. Well, I'm a damn Yankee. <laughs> yeah, we hit 93 yesterday after a thunderstorm, so it was super humid. Then we had a tornado watch. Never, never hit one here, but uh, yeah, it was a bit concerning. Not too bad it wasn't up there. Yeah, I understand Texas is going to get uh, cooked pretty good today. And for those well, of you that uh, are you know follow any Canadian news, this actually made some na- international headlines. Rogers, one of our bigger internet slash cell phone slash phone providers, went down for almost twenty four hours countrywide, and they control most of the ATMs and all kinds of things. So <laughs> all kinds of stuff was down. They're one of our monopoly companies. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm kind of lucky. I got them for my phone service, so I had no texting, no phone, no internet on the phone. But I have a separate local provincial one for my internet to the house, so I could still access everything that way. But if I'd been like strictly on the one plan, I would have been totally offline for 24 hours. Yeah, but just imagine the work you got done without getting phone calls. No, no. <laughs> then you have people popping over to your house to check, and are you okay? You're not answering your phone. <laughs> And none of your apps will start because they have to phone home. Yeah, well, the, the phones are working. They've been warned, like the police were warning, like 911 services, if you're on Rogers, forget it. It's not working. Wow. Like it was a major, major outage. In fact, they, they did a graph of their internet, you, you know, average internet traffic, and it dropped to zero and stayed there for from yesterday morning, about 3 Eastern, until this morning. Wow, that's huge. 
and still lots of people without phone service yet. Somebody's yeah. boo-booed. Right. Mine came up this morning about, I don't know, it came up briefly last night for about 10 minutes and went off again, but it's been consistently on today, this morning. So let me guess, a misprogrammed router. They haven't really said what happened. Uh, like they basically said that they had a bunch of redundancy stuff built in and, and they're investigating as to why they all failed. So I, I don't know what happened and that they haven't really said anything. They are going to give us some discounts in our bills though. So that's nice. Yeah. Four <laughs> but then there's the people like me that uh, here are um, for our uh, um, phone service. It piggybacks off of Rogers. And so I'm not Rogers, but, we had no phone service and I don't get any break on it. Well, are, are they going to pass along the breaks? It sounds like Rogers is basically a blanket case for everybody's getting, you don't have to apply uh, for it or nothing. It's an automatic. I don't think discount. so. Cause they might discount some of the subcarriers just to. Cause I think they're disc, they're disc. Well, yeah, they, they may discount the subcarriers, but not necessarily the uh, customers of those subcarriers. Yeah. I always remember that Leo Loport always complained about how bad Rogers was up there in Canada. And that was back before they think they got into cell phones. That was when they were just a cable company. Okay, I can tell you what happened. A moose knocked over maple syrup and moose. <laughs> uh, you know us too well, Jason. Moose got loose in the hoose. <laughs> it was warm maple syrup that mounted our national um, igloo at, uh, that housed our internet service. Yeah, and, and Roger's staff were too busy you know, wolfing down the poutine there off to the side and didn't even notice for days. Could be, could be. Anyway. All right. As far as panel introductions, everybody can read the names on the slides. <laughs> Hold on. I, I, we're going to have to sound out. Oh, we're in that cast. Actually, if you're watching on your phone, no, you can't. It's too damn small. No, nope, I, can't, I can't read mine. All right, let's see. Uh, start at the top up here. Uh, let's, I, you know what? Today's all topsy-turny anyway. Uh, lower right-hand corner, we have James Diffendaffer. Hello. And next over, Jason Reichard. Hello, hello. Any new products today with switches? No, no. It's It's summertime. <laughs> and on the last left on the bottom row we have grant lee hello everybody okay let's see next up uh with the game on challenge we have ken waters oh hello and the man in the middle l curtis boyle welcome to the show everyone and uh frank went uh you know retro rewind frank is in the chat, and uh, he was mentioning that we're talking about like Leo Laporte used to complain about Rogers, and uh, he said, "Yeah, that's because uh, he technically worked for Rogers at the time." So, <laughs> oh. Oh. so he's allowed to complain. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> All right, next over, Mark Overhoser. Hello there, glad to be here. And uh, which orbit are you on now? Me? Yeah. That's my portal out to the uh, the uh, solar flare. <laughs> Sunrise, Is that a Carrington huh? level event solar flare you're talking about, or what are you talking about here? I don't know. Should I step through the door and find it? <laughs> oh, don't worry. Stuff will light a fire if it's a Carrington event, so you don't have to worry about figuring it out from going outside. All right. Let's see. Up on the top of the next row, Patrick Eland. 
Howdy, folks. And in the center, yours truly. And the last but not least, Ron Delvo. 112 here, but we're not complaining. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, you chose to live in surprise. But it's a dry heat. Yeah, you you chose to live on the surface (laughs) of the sun there, Ron, so that's your own problem. (laughs) I look outside like everybody else does in the winter when it's snowing. I like snow. You can play hockey on it. You can toboggan on it. You can skidoo on it. You can ice fish on it, which is actually basically drinking. But but can you cook on your dashboard? Yeah, in the summer I can. Like even in too. the winter. Actually, even in the winter, yeah. Actually, if you just uh, set up a, a window with a bit of a, you know, magnification on it. We get a lot of sun up here in the winter. so. Well, we can cook in 12 minutes, though. <laughs> <laughs> it takes that long. I wouldn't think it would. <laughs> Okay. Alan Paradise everybody. in the chat says Ron's front window is a solar observatory. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you look real carefully, you can uh, see Mark up there. Although our phone stays on. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I. I, I have nothing to say on that. You're right. <laughs> it's not our only nationalized one. We got a few others like Bell and Telus too. But yeah, that that was bad. Yeah, Telus because we have no idea. I can call and tell you that <laughs> we're on fire. <laughs> yeah. I had to work with the Alberta call center and they had a lot of nice things to say about tell us. Am I detecting sarcasm? I lived in Alberta Possibly. and I don't have anything nice to say about tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm hearing here is you hate all your monopoly communication companies equally. Yes, pretty yeah. much. Pretty much. I think it's the same yeah. as the States. Yeah. Right. Right. Monopolies are all the same. Pretty much. Depending on where you live, you know, AT&T can be good. It can suck. Verizon can be good. It can suck. You know, it just depends. Well, then it's a good thing that uh, Radio Shack uh, was not a monopoly. <laughs> negative comments. So uh, uh, down here, uh, analog telephones are fading away. So two years, three years ago, FCC put out a ruling saying that the uh, – uh, phone providers can uh, stop offering uh, analog phone lines, and the transition period ends uh, in August, uh, next month. You're talking about fi- uh, copper, or are you talking about yeah. cellular? No, the copper. You know, just two wire oh, okay. copper. Gotcha. Okay. So the old uh, pots line. Exactly. No pots more pots copper clapper going away. <laughs> <laughs> my parents so. still have a pots line. Yeah, my mom does too. Ours are all underground, so that's actually the most reliable by far. You know, no weather system can take them out, so they just work. Yeah, until the installation cracks and water seeps in, and well, then they got because our, our setup up. for winter. I don't think we usually have those problems. I don't know too many that are you know, dug up and have to be redone. Uh, the, some of the farmhouses yeah. and stuff still have the overhead line, so they get you know, every time a good windstorm comes through, the pole goes down. But sure, one thing about a phone with a handset is hanging up on somebody. Bam! <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did that on my cell phone. Up. Did you know the screen cracks easily? Oh, my God. oh geez. <laughs> I'll show you. Oh, I showed me. Damn it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, any topic today, or shall we go into game on? I think game on should be the topic because I think, uh, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we had one of the most successful live streams we've ever had on. Uh, as far as I know, it was. All right, let's uh, or run pretty close to it anyway, or equal to. 
Okay. And we also been visited by Coco uh, Gimes today. He has his put out a Coco Thoughts. So why don't we uh, have a look at that? I thought well, he was dead. Maybe we should just wait. Well, apparently not. Gimes has been resurrected. <laughs> Any possibility of putting him in the bed? Just for Ron. Just sh- for Ron. Let me share a screen here so that Thank everyone you. can see it. Here we go. The reports of Gimes' death have been greatly exaggerated. And now, Coco Thoughts. By Samuel Gimes. Well, it's a marvelous week for Moon Shuttle as you shoot your <laughs> way through all the docks. A twisted, lousy belt of big asteroids wants to knock off far more than your socks. And the rocket keeps moving you forward to the crunch of that fatal last blow. I know you're trying to find a way through now, but your heart won't say go high or low. And then the aliens attack and you have to shoot them. After you finish, you start all over again. Can you just play some more Moon Shuttle this week for Game On? Some more moon shuttle this week for game on. <laughs> okay. So, Ron, was that worth the wait? He's got an uncanny ability to find music from anywhere. <laughs> That's music? <laughs> I believe music I believe was music. Singing, on the other hand, well, is a different story. It was in story. the background. I, I don't know about the vocals, but. I All I can say is that been described uh, as music-ish. Yeah. All I can say is that boat has competition again on on the amigos for horrible singing. Yes. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to this week's Coco Talk Game On Challenge of the Week results video. This week we played Moon Shuttle. We had a total of 20 players. We had Nick Morentes with 6,040, Henry, 6,390, Exile in Paradise, 6,510, Missy, 6,520. Mark B, 10,770. David Ladd, 11,710. Grant B, 11,860. Sloopy Malibu, 12,890. Buck Owens, 12,910. Paul Shoemaker, 13,770. Brian Walsh, 13,840. Jim Rye, 14,010. David Z, 14,020. Ed Rhodes, 14,520. Rich N, 14,550. Mr. Dave, 6309, 15,480. Sabhead, 15,710. Canadian Retro Things, 15,750. L. Curtis Boyle, 17,740. 
And the number one score this week was Tasman with 17,770. Thanks, everybody that played this week, and we will see you next week. Curtis, so close. Yeah, and I had like three men left, and I was only like 500 points off, and I just died in rapid succession. Oh. I figured that was a, a sign. Just don't try anymore. Oh. Well, no. you could have uh, Photoshopped it. Nah, I, I, I have integrity. You know, the score <laughs> spread wasn't all that big. No, it wasn't. Uh, there was not a lot of difference between... Well, it was a lot of groups of scores, too. Like, yeah. a lot of people, 6,000 points, then 10,000, 14,000. Yeah, once you get to the levels where they start shooting at angles with you, at you, that's when it starts getting tough. So Yeah. And I think uh, on, that, on those screens, hiding in the corner uh, at least protected you from one direction. One yeah, direction, a little bit until okay. you got groups of them kind of like just shooting you, and then you had no room to maneuver because you can only go in one direction to move. So it's... Yeah, because you get a group of them down at the bottom, and a couple of them would shoot straight. A couple of them would shoot on the upper diagonal. So trying to get out of the way of the straight shot would take you right into the diagonal shot. All right, so I managed to find one review on this game. Well, there was two reviews listed, but there was no copy of the one magazine in the archive. So, which one was that? Out of curiosity. Ah, let me see here. I've got the September eighty. Three, it was hot cocoa July of 84. Yeah, it's not one I have on in person. I was gonna see if I can grab it, but but this one on. is Color Computer magazine from September of 83. And I actually learned a bit about playing the game by reading the article because there is no instruction manual in the uh, archive. And yes, I actually looked for an instruction manual on this one. Wow. After I read this, but I looked. There was none. <laughs> Anyways, uh, there was things like there's a mystery ship disguised as an asteroid. You get 30 extra points and an extra shuttle by destroying it. Um, for the first wave of bad guys, the uh, Smurf butts, or what did they call them here? Bomb launchers? They look like Smurf butts anyway. I was playing um, the other artifact color sets, so they were red. I couldn't call them Smurf butts. Oh. <laughs> it's the artifact color I was playing. They were blue, so... Uh, you know they'll begin firing when they stop moving. And then in the second wave of bad guys, uh, when the expandos begin to expand, then watch out because they start firing. And the mana wars don't give any warning. They just fire. That's the so, octopus-like things? Yeah. The third wave. It mentions the TDP-100. Yeah, the game is uh, listed as being for the um, color computer and the TDP-100. Uh, yeah, yeah, right down. I actually have the cassette version of this, and it, it has TDB one, TDP 100 right on it. Awesome. Do you have the manual, Jason? <clears throat> no, I just have the loose cassette, I do believe. Okay. Uh, uh, take a picture of it and send it to the TDP site. Yeah, I, I do actually... believe it's on the TDP 100 Facebook group. Is it? Yeah, I oh, think it's okay. over there. Okay, good. Great. And uh, this uh, reviewer does say that uh, he can't imagine being too successful without joysticks. But I, I think, totally Curtis, you were saying that you disagree with that. Because <laughs> totally. last night you were saying how you like the keyboard. Yep. And I think the keyboard would be fine because you're basically just up and down and fire. So. Yeah, and you speed up with the right arrow if you're you know, finishing In the, off asteroid the asteroid belt. belt. Yeah. yeah. 
So I think it would be an easy game. I didn't try it with the keyboard, but I think it would be a pretty easy game to play with the keyboard. The other, the other thing with the uh, keyboard controls is because the space bar is your fire button and it's a big wide honking thing you can hit with either thumb. Then you don't get your, your trigger finger too tired. Like I know some people are complaining. I think Tasman, actually, the guy who won the high score challenge, you know, he said, you know, after he played his last game, got his high score, he says, my, my fingers are too sore to do this. Well, you have to use the one finger basically repeatedly, whereas I yeah. can just alternate thumbs as I go so I don't get tired as easily. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not as good of a player, but. Good point. And uh, here is a screenshot of uh, the bonus ship hiding up behind the uh, top big asteroid. Yeah, I'm the upper right there of the asteroid yeah. belt. So if you destroy it, you get 30 bonus points and an extra ship. Yeah, and you also get free ships at 10,000. So if you can collect yeah. them, you can actually jump up your free ships quite a bit. And usually when I got that, I ended up needing to use it. Yeah, every time I went <laughs> after the free ship, I would get it, but then I'd die because I didn't blow a big enough hole in the asteroid belt to get through. <laughs> All right, and let us look at some game footage here. Oh, this will be from the live streamer. Uh, first, I'm going to share, because he sent it to me. Oh, Mr. David Ladd. Mr. David Ladd's gameplay footage. And he's using a really, really old version of BCC, it looks like. Yeah. Is that correct, David? Because oh. I just noticed you joined the call. No, it's actually uh, MAME. I just didn't set the artifact, or I'm using the Coco 3 version of it. Oh, okay. Oh, you poor, poor sucker using MAME. I love it, because I can use the AVI write feature, which is a feature <laughs> I wish the other emulators had, so I could easily create videos. And you can see here that he's got the uh, Smurf butt colors. Yeah, he's got that color set. Okay, so uh, for everybody that tried this game, does anybody have any uh, ticks, trip, eh, tricks and tips uh, other than the ones that I mentioned in the uh, article there? I'll give one that either helped me get my scores up, and I also I think it made it easier to get through the asteroid belt, especially in the later levels, is I don't try to punch a hole through the middle or anything like that. I actually sweep. And I usually sweep in the direction that the first row of asteroids is going, mm -hmm. or in the opposite direction, I should say, so that I can create a hole at the place they're going down at the far left side. Then I'll go to the top and then shoot my way down so that I've got a whole corridor. So I do it like Pac-Man where you're taking up rows of aliens instead of columns. Yeah. And it gives me a bit more opportunity to get through and also easier to shoot the free ship, et cetera. So that's and that's one. also, uh, I found that was a good thing to do because um, you actually get more points for destroying the asteroids than you do destroying the guys that are shooting at you yeah yeah so in fact if you, you can clear off an entire the first couple of waves you can clear off all the asteroids and as long as you don't speed up your ship you can let a, like a second wave start coming and get a few extra points per level yep so it's a good way to pad your score is uh, go after as many asteroids as possible because they don't shoot back yeah um sweeping up and down also made it easier for me on the octopus's things uh, personally, because as if you miss them as they're going by, every time they hit the edge of the screen, they speed up. Or not mm -hmm. every time, but most of the time. 
so they can get going like really, really fast and they start edging closer and closer towards you. But if I sweep, so I'm going the same direction as they are, the the relative difference of velocities between you and them makes it a bit easier to hit them. And I discovered I can get through the levels a bit easier until the diagonal shots come out. Then it's a bit of a crapshoot then. But yeah. I like how when the octopus things explode, there's a lightning bolt. Yeah, each explosion is different too. There's a sort of a red explosion on one of the other ones type thing instead of a lightning bolt. Yeah, so there is definitely some uh, time and thought put into this game. Yeah. Now, is anybody here in the panel, has anybody played the arcade game? Like, I, I know it's based on a Nichibitsu game from 1981, and it's one that the Coco uh, version of it actually did right. They actually have the ship coming in from the left, going to the right. A lot of the clones, for some reason, switched the asteroids to be going across the top. You came up from the bottom. The arcade does it like the Coco version does. But has anybody actually played the arcade one? Because I didn't have that one in any of my local arcades back in the nope. day. So I never had heard of it or seen it before. So I played it briefly at the Galloping Ghost with Stevie after a, after a, an event in Chicago one time, but I don't remember much about it. I mean, it has some extra, you know, subtleties. Like it has like star fields that they're, you're flying across, and your your ship's a bit more animated, spinning around um, from watching videos of it. And I'm faintly remembering playing it in Maine years and years ago. Well, I don't know the uh, the Coco version seemed to be a pretty darn good version. Yeah, good sound effects, fast. You know, it starts slow, but it definitely speeds up as you go. Yeah. Um, nice animations of the flames and stuff like that. I mean, the uh, the ship that the uh, review in Color Computer Magazine claimed was, you know, expanding. I just thought it was rotating. I just thought you were seeing it edge on. Oh, and is it rotating? I that, thought it that, was. Well, I, that's, that's what I always assumed it's been. But uh, I think the review said the same thing you did. So maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I thought it was like expanding to shoot something out, like taking like a breath in almost. And... Yeah. I just figured it was flying edge on and then it was flipping over to shoot you type thing. Like you'd watch like an F-15 or something. Well, that's possible too. I don't know. That, that was That's always what I thought since I first played the game way back when. Now, this game is a bit strange. I mean, it's one of the three officially arcade licensed ones from Datasoft that we got on the Coco. The others being Puyan and Zaxxon. But when... Datasoft selling started selling them on their own in 80 year early 83. Tandy ended up picking up Zaxxon and Puyen selling them stores like 32k required games. Moon Shuttle is the only one of those three that only needed 16k to run, but for some reason Tandy didn't pick it up, which they could have sold to more people because you know back in 83, people still had 16k Cocos or Coco Twos. I did. And that would have been a bigger market, so I'm not sure why they re- didn't pick this one up along with the other two. Don't know. And I know Mark Siegel's in the chat, but that might have been before his time at Tandy. But if he knows the reasoning why, he was at Datasoft too, so he might really know. I'm just curious as to why that one was not picked up and the other two were, which you know would have been more limited as to what machines you could sell it for, unless Tandy bought it them specifically to get people to upgrade. In which case, maybe that's why. I don't know. Kind of nice to have a black background instead of green or something. Yeah, I'm sure Nick will agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Except he would, he'd want to get rid of that white border, too. Yeah, the border would be good, but it's not bad. That one looks all right. And this is a game, Nick. I mean, first of all, you actually played it for the game on Challenge, which is a very rare thing to yeah, say. Sorry, Usually yeah, you only bad. play games you wrote and you tell everybody else to screw <laughs> off. But uh, is this a game you played when you were uh, quite a bit when you were young or liked in the arcade, it, et cetera? It, it was one, yeah, one of them, yeah. I mean, 
of the few games I did play, I thought this was one of the one of the better ones. I mean, it's a simple simple shoot 'em up, but I thought it was for the time quite well done. What year is this? Nineteen eighty three. Eighty three for the Coco version, eighty one yeah. for the arcade. Yeah, that's right. And this yeah. one obviously would have been rare to get the original tape for it because you would have had to order directly from Datasoft, not through Tandy like Puyen and Zaxxon were later on. Yeah, and unfortunately, like when I was had a color computer back in eighty three, I didn't know anything about uh ordering um like third Games party that stuff, way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Are we ever going to have a 4K game challenge? Yeah, every time we do the MC10. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think we have done some 4K games, haven't have we? Which 4K I mean, what, games? Can you think of one that's really good? Scarfman by the Cornsoft Group, which is a Pac Man. Oh, yeah, we've done popcorn. Yeah, I guess that's the gray area because if you're including cartridge games, then there's a fair number of games that run in 4K of RAM. And now, if you have a copy of it as opposed to the cartridge, you you'll need at least 16K or more. But there's Popcorn, Skiing, Dino Wars, Quasar Commander, um, Monster Maze, uh, Math Bingo. Um, <laughs> you know, the highlight of every collection. <laughs> Patrick laughs at right at the right time. <laughs> Yeah. No, there's quite a few. If you go to the cartridge games, there's quite a few games that are uh, 4K required. Now, usually they don't play as well, like Skiing and Quasar Commander, for example. If you have 16K, they'll page flip. So it draws the screen off offline and then displays it. So there's no flicker at all. But if you play it on a 4K machine, it, it can't do that. There's not enough RAM. So you'll watch it, like wipe the screen out and then redraw. So it flickers. Yeah. Oh, I remember Ron, Skiing if, did that on my 4K one. And then I got 16K. If you come across any 4K games, just uh, let me know and uh, we can make them a game on challenge. Well, shoot it at the OK Galaxy, I think. By Avalon Hill was one. Scarfman for sure was one. I'm trying to think of third party ones here because those were much more rare. Um, most of them would be Radio Shack cartridges. And they would all be old, right? 81, 80. Well, like Monster Maze was what, 82 or 83, I think? Which is that kind of berserk clone that with gold treasures yeah. to pick up? Which we, I think we've already done that one for the challenge. Uh, no, we didn't. I, I was thinking about doing that, but I didn't do it yet. Okay, because that that's one. Yeah. Cool. That was one of my favorite games as a kid. It uh, was with the first one of the first cartridges I owned. That and Dungeons of Daggerith. That one needs sixteen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Football. That's another one. Uh, chess and checkers those both work in 4k amazing that sounds like a game you need friends for though yeah i don't have friends so that's some problem <laughs> popcorn yeah rocky hill uh pedro brought that up in the chat that's another one 4k as well true that one we did play yes yeah, so we've done some yeah. yeah cool all right so what you see on your screen right now is the game on challenge uh so there there's four i'll see if i can get up to when we had lots of people playing yeah this is one of our more successful uh game ons we had some new faces there we had uh quite a few people there we had some uh 
disc formatting going on. It was great. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was old Mr. David Ladd there had to had to do something a bit off. <laughs> Showing his floppy skills. Yeah. Hey, hey David. Now. And here we had eight people going at once. I think our record so far is nine. I don't know if we got up. Yeah, we had enough unique people night. during the stream to do that, but not always at the same time, which is you know the only. Yeah, problem. well, that's the last time we did nine people. We actually had about thirteen or fourteen people come and go, but I'm not sure how many people came and went on this one. But yeah, I think people were having a lot of fun playing this game live. So I guess this is our second week of of the new shifted time to Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern, I think. Yeah. Um, how how do you, you view that this as a success? I mean, Slippy's obviously not here to talk about himself, but uh, from your point of view, um, and the fact that you have to come up with a high score list like, a little bit later now. <laughs> that's, how, how are that's you finding fun. it? Like, is the participation worth it for you? I think so, yeah. Like, we're getting uh, some pretty good participation. Um, let me just see here. <laughs> So do you think in the title, one of those names are made up or is that the actual names of the people? In which title? The, the long one that has butt in it. <laughs> I didn't see. I didn't yeah, if you get a chance, about? take a look at the. Looks like a made up name. You're talking about on this live stream here? No, yeah. You know, when the game starts, there's credits, you know, for who, who wrote the game. James oh. Garon and, and Jerry Humphrey? No, keep going. There's one with the word buddy. <laughs> I don't remember. It just that. doesn't if seem I like can find... Yeah, let me bring yeah, up... When uh... the game starts, I, I st stared at the name and thought, that can't possibly be a, a person's name, could it? Hmm. Let me just try to find... Also, uh, uh, Jason has posted in our disc or, or our Zoom chat, I should say, a uh, direct link to the tape, uh, Moon Shuttle tape pick from Datasoft, which actually mentions the TDP 100 as well. Does it have the leader? Oh. Um, does it? And I have located a copy of the July 84 hot, hot cocoa. Oh, well, it, the archive needs it. Um, so, okay, if you want to hold that up to the screen or, or, to show and then we oh, can also show that sharing here uh, i'm gonna highlight myself here come on buttons how about this way so yes, does it have a photo cocoa. of the game in action in the review do you know or i don't know let's take a look um i'll uh you guys keep talking i'll uh okay well, flip here, through here and quickly... try to find the review I'll quickly share the title screen from the game. I didn't, I don't know, not sure what Ron was talking about here. Yeah, I don't know what he's talking about either. Nishibatsu. Oh, that's the name of the, that's the Japanese, that's the Japanese company, company that, that originally makes the uh, game. made the game in 81. So it's a real name. Oh, yeah. yeah. They made tons of arcade games back in the day. Actually, are they what, still around? They might even be. I wonder what it means in, in the native tongue. No idea. 
Also, we got a comment from Mark Siegel, and he said that uh, Moonshell was not offered to Radio Shack, so that sounds like a data soft didn't offer to them. I'm not quite sure why, but. Never heard of that name before. I'm trying to remember. They made a ton of games. So. Did they? Yeah. Actually, if I wanted some, uh, Mark or, or, or Ken, if you can bring up uh, Jason's link to the tape in the Zoom chat here so we can see what the tape looks like. Okay. Which, uh, um, I think you indicated it includes a TDP 100 reference. Yeah. Cool. Just bringing it up now. <laughs> and I will share that as soon as I find where I am. There we go. And can we see that? Yeah. So TRS-80 color and TDP-100. There's that name again. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> the official moon shuttle, 16K. Cool. Interesting. It's interesting, but the credit for moon shuttle is given by the U.S. division of the uh, parent company, but then it also has the data yeah. soft copyright. So maybe it was actually done by the U.S. division of the Japanese company, but then data soft actually released it. We did the cassettes and stuff, and basically distribution. That could be why it wasn't offered to Tandy is because it wasn't ever data soft to actually do anything with it. Yeah, I'd have to see what, what are the original data soft versions of uh, Puyan and, and Zaxxon, what they have for verbiage on there if it's different. Okay, I look at the review in this issue of Hot Cocoa. They also reviewed Dead Dungeons of Daggeroth in the same issue. Um, so how do you want me to do that? Just blow, put it up here, I'll blow it up. it up, or read it. Oh, and no, I just, oh, yeah, we can't read that. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to read it. I'll read the uh, last paragraph, the summary. Uh, <laughs> Moon Shuttle has data sauce, fine graphics, and nice packaging. Uh, the box includes both tape and disc versions of the game. It doesn't demand that the planning skill. Yeah, it doesn't demand the planning skills that you'll need for other games this month, but it does require the quickest reflexes and concentration. Uh, let's see. First look, uh, this is from the beginning, data start. The first look at Moon Shuttle. Uh, here's their address. Uh, 32K tape and disc. Uh, as a sideways space invaders or souped up version of Datasoft's Puyan. <clears throat> Uh, in it, you will use joystick or arrow keys to control a spaceship that appears on the left on the screen. You must move it from the screen to screen, which in which you must either blast your way through asteroid belt or destroy waves of quick-moving aliens. Getting through the asteroid belts isn't too tough, even at higher levels. But dodging, firing, uh, yeah, but dodging, ugh, but the dodging, firing aliens are another story. Even the first wave isn't exactly easy, and it's not long before you'll find yourself in some of the fastest arcade action you're likely to see. I just took a look at, uh, at the Japanese company here. They did 93 video games between 1980s. I don't know, 
So such as Moon Cresta, Crazy Climber, Terra Cresta, a whole bunch of Mahjong games, dozens of them. And they were their parent company was Nihon Busan, which is also the parent company of an adult video game company called Sphinx, which made some pretty awful adult video games. <laughs> Worse than Custer's Revenge. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> They're really trying then. <laughs> well, I don't know if worse. I would say pretty um on par. <laughs> it's kind of interesting that 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 the company that did Moon Shuttle actually also did Moon Cresta because that was an officially licensed game on the Dragon. So there's a couple of those got you know over to our side of the woods. But Crazy Climber obviously is popular, and there's so many Mahjong games they did. Like dozens of different. Oh, it's a Terra Cresta 3D. They also had, had their part in doing pirated games like Galaxian Part 10. <laughs> Some comments that uh, they t- they were one of the ones that used to pirate and kind of just mildly change a few existing arcade games just enough to try to sell them. Oh, they made games all the way up into the PlayStation back up into the late 90s. Yeah, their arcade era. ones are from 1979 until their last release was 1996. And that was an adult one like you were talking about. So. Mm-hmm. so, yeah, they they were around for a long time. And the, the disc version on the Coco <laughs> had that uh, loader screen with a, a title as well. Yeah. Actually, I can... I think Zaxxon and Puyen had that too, the original ones. Yeah, yeah, they did. Because just just basic took enough extra RAM that basically a lot of games that worked in 16K and cassette needed 32K, but barely. So I think a lot of people did, you know, I might as well put in a full high-res loading screen then because taking 32K anyway, what the heck. Hey, Curtis, you would know this. Um, was there many requirements for 32K for games over the years? It seems like it's either 16K or then it went to 64K and it wasn't. No, 32K around 82, 83, 84 was probably the most popular configuration. And that'd be stuff like Time Bandit and Cash Man and you know, just all kinds of things like that. Touchstone. Like the ads yeah. would say 32K minimum. Yeah. Or- yeah, Donkey King 32K, Donkey Monkey 32K. I mean, from once 32K came out from Tandy 8182, <clears throat> it became a pretty popular configuration because then you could screen flip like PMO4 screens to get smooth animation. Before that, you had to do the flickery thing. And then 64K, when it came out in the fall of 83, took a while to catch on because it was, you know, not the cheapest upgrade in the world at that time. And people had to write games for it. And they, you know, they didn't want to write to, you know, just the new people that had bought in the 64K Coco or Coco 2. So they were trying to write for 16 or 32K. Um, so the 32K actually lasted up probably till about 85. Then you start seeing, you know, ah, screw it, we'll just go straight to 64 because they weren't selling 32K machines anymore. And if you so, go through the old magazines, there's a lot of ads that have the 32K in them. Yeah, Tom Mix, Spectral, almost all their later games took 32K. And don't you think the Dragon stuff is mostly mentions 32K and not the Well, the Dragon 32 sold almost half a million dragons during its one year right. lifespan and the dragon 64, because you know, they went under during it. <laughs> they didn't sell as many. So the it dragon was, 32 a, yeah, was it was not around for a long time. So 
didn't have a long time for people to develop for it. Yeah, I so, think combined they sold uh, like half a million to 600,000 maybe. And I'm so not sure you if say, you include your hard. Would you say most um, games that are Dragon are advertised 32K minimum when they do? Well, Dra Dragon only briefly sold a 16K version, like not for even like a month or two. And then they just made 32K the base minimum. So every Dragon okay. pretty well had 32K. And then okay. the few required the 64K. Gotcha. But yeah, later later on, like 85, 86, before the Coke 3 came out, like Diacom, all their games required 64K. So they were one of the first companies that kind of kickstarted um, that. And I think Sundog and a few others too. Yeah, the uh, people that bought 16, <clears throat> excuse me, 16K Dragons, they had an upgrade option too that a lot of people took advantage of. So there wouldn't have been hardly any of those left around. Yeah. And that was just because I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but I think we were just trying to get it to market because they wanted to hit that sweet spot for C64 and a bunch of others took over. And they were successful. The Dragon 32, during that first year of its uh, operation up through Christmas, was on average probably in fourth or fifth place out of every computer in the UK. It was beating the Coco by quite a large margin at the time and beating you know the VIC-20 and some other machines too. And they were seesawing with the C64 and the wow. Spectrum. Well, when you consider the Spectrum probably outsold it by about five times. I Later on, but not that first year. Place not that first mean year. a lot. Uh, we, I don't know if you were on that show, uh, James, but about six months ago, I actually found there was a, a UK magazine that actually published the charts, sales charts for all the different machines in the UK. And the Dragon was consistently in the top five the entirety of the second half of 1982. And the Spectrum was below or slightly above C64, I think didn't start beating it until near the end of the year type thing. So it was it was very successful at that very beginning. And then the other ones kind of took over. If you include the sales as you know the machines progressed, and of course the dragon got canceled in 83. Um, then of course they lost, but they were doing pretty good at the start. What if they had the stuck around? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it would have helped too much. It would have helped some, um, but not having a sprite chip, not having a sound chip, et cetera. Now the Dragon Beta, the Dragon Professional, some of those other machines that you know there's prototypes of, and they're trying to recreate them now in the UK. If those had come out in '84, like they were supposed to, then I think they would have had a shot because I mean one of them had two CPUs and it had a mm -hmm. sound chip and you know high res graphics far beyond like closer to the Coco Three level machine. But several years earlier, that would have really competed, I think. But uh, they didn't. Well, you know. that was sort of the Apple Three approach to the market. Yeah, well, they had several of them though. They they kind of did like an Apple II E and a, you know, an Apple III or type thing. Like they had several machines lined up: the Alpha, the Professional, the Beta, and if you know a couple of those had made it, um, like they weren't all these dual CPUs or anything. But uh, a couple of those had made it. I think they would have had a pretty good shot if they you know got kept the cost competitive. You got a loud keyboard there, Rick. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> the uh, artwork that the uh, original Moon Shuttle came with uh, that Datasoft had was uh, look looks pretty good. I'll I can just try share my screen just to show the yeah, image. Yeah, sure. I actually don't remember what it looks like off the top of my head. Is that going oh. through? Yeah, that is good. Ooh, I yeah, like that. so that's the Commodore sixty four packaging, but maybe the Tandy one had the same because. They would I would guess shared. it is because it looks like that's just yeah. a sticker over top that says Commodore 64, and they did sell it for other machines, so I'm guessing. 
Well, that's exactly what the cocoa version looks like. <laughs> yeah, slightly higher res, you know, but <laughs> slightly. that's how I imagine it looks like when I'm playing it. When <laughs> I close my eyes and just listen, that's what it looks like. Yeah. That's right. That'd be good to have a big poster of that on the wall, though. <laughs> and now you guys got me reading this magazine. <laughs> we'll see you in a couple hours. Well, this was got the it, lower. Get it, get it up to the archive. We all want to read it. This has got the uh, lowercase uh, mod. Cool. I remember seeing that page. <laughs> no, is that is that a homemade one, or is that you know how to install Dennis Bathory Kit's lower kit or something like that? Uh, homemade. So they just replaced the character ROM and wired it in the BG. Yeah. So they just, uh, I mean, there's this schematic of it. Ah. It's so shrunk, I can barely see it, but I'll take your word for it. Mm -hmm. I get the BDG over there to character ROM and then uh, custom select chips. Okay. So, cool. All right. I'll have to get this, uh, I'll have to get this scan. You know what? I better. Check the rest of the archive and see if there's any more of my god that are up there. Well, there's most of most of 84's hot pokos are not there. Yeah, there's chunks of uh, CCN uh, color computer news that are missing near the end of the run. There's three in a row are missing, and there's a few of the rainbows I've noticed, and I've mentioned a few as I found them to Guillaume, but there's a few of the rainbows that are missing pages. Yeah, in the middle, I of found that a couple of times. All right, so shall we see what we are playing next week? I think we've beat this dead horse. Well, shoot, enough, fun, fun game. I'll summarize a fun yep. game. Good shooter. Nothing, yeah, no complaints. It was, it was surprisingly fun. I uh, kind of hesitantly, I looked at it a few times and was hesitant about putting it on, but so I didn't really try playing it. But yeah, definitely well made. All right. So next week. Ah, you're kind of following up on the uh, the one that they did for the Spectrum on Amigos. Yep. That's where I got the idea. <laughs> Except instead of Night Patrol, we have Arctic Patrol, because our palette set kind of dictates that. And then where is the title screen? First of all, does anybody else know what that game is before he oh. displays the title screen? Uh, motorbike game? Yeah. yeah what's it called? Um, oh, man. I can't remember what it was called. There's a bit of a controversy of whether the word 3D is part of the title or if that was just a description on the box, if that helps you. Well, this is the version I found. A death chase. Mm -hmm. Death chase. Now, that copyright 1983 by Mervyn Escort, that's the original Spectrum version. It was actually yeah. one of the premier titles for the Spectrum. Uh, doing like it was it was basically based on a sequence from is it from Return of the Jedi? Yeah, Return of the Jedi, the land speeders going through the uh, forest. Yeah, it's a little bit different. They got tanks and stuff to shoot up. Tanks, too. and you're on a motorbike rather than a land speeder. But now the Coco Dragon version, as you can see here, copyright 2009 by James McKay, the same guy that did Glove, which is a Gauntlet clone, um, came out obviously much much later. But we did have a game that incorporated stuff like this called Return of the Jedi. Um, yeah. By Thunder Vision, I believe it was. Except that one had extra levels too. There was like three different basic types of gameplay in that one. This one basically just repeats the same one, you know, getting harder and changing the color set. 
more, but it's, more it's, trees that you have to avoid. Yeah. I basically the, the object of the game is you have you've got different things in the forest. And plus you've got bikes and stuff that you're shooting and you steer. You can't hit a tree, obviously. Um, so it's basically a 3D shoot them up, I guess is the best way to kind of describe yeah. it. The sound does get ingratiating after a while, so you may want to have that volume control handy. <laughs> so when you're playing the live version, make sure everybody's got their sound turned up just to annoy Sloopy. <laughs> yeah, just crank it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so this is uh, what I believe it's Coco one, two, and three. Yep. And 64K? Uh, no, I don't think it needs or that. 32. 32? I think. I think it runs 32K if I remember correctly. I really should look these. There you go. Up. Another one, Ron, that runs 32. Oh, Ron left? Uh, he did have an, he had an appointment to go to. Oh, okay. I'm just going to look it up really, really quickly here. On some guy named L. Curtis Boyle's website. Uh, yeah, he's, I don't know <laughs> if he's reputable or not, but. Uh, I get he's a lot not. of ideas from there. So, oh, it's 16K. Call not one, two, three, 16K. Oh, okay. I thought it was 32. And that was the Amstrad CPC version was 1983. The original version was on yeah, the Amstrad The Spectrum CPC. came out about the same time from, I remember, Boat and Aaron when they covered it on the Spectrum show. That was one of the ones they did live. All right, so have fun playing that game. Yep. Cool. I have a if sound. You go, if you go crazy from the sound, don't blame me. Yeah. <laughs> I have a side game to propose. Count the Commodores. One, two, three. Is it three? What are you talking about? In, in uh, CRT's background. Oh, in my background, I've got yes. two. Oh, C64 and a VIC-20 back there. <laughs> cool. And, so, and as to why he has them out there, you know, with his trusty Cocos there, we'll explain that when we come up to a Game On news segment that he's going to be involved with. Oh, cool. I was wondering what that was about. Most yeah. people have a dark okay. past, you know. <laughs> and it appears I have quite a chunk of 1984 in hot cocoa and pretty much all of 85. Now you have a mission. I uh, have a mission. So, hey, we ready for first commercial break and then jump in the news? Yeah, sure. Well, the game on news right after the commercial break. Yep. You are watching Coco Talk, the world's leading weekly video podcast featuring a candy colored computer. We spread the love to the past, present, and future for all models, including the original color computer. Coco Talk would like to thank the patrons who sponsor our program. So our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Alan Huffman, Alan Murphy, Blair Ledoux, Boat and Aaron, Brendan Donahue, Brian Weasler, Brian Walsh, Karen Anscombe, D. Bruce Moore, Daddy Burrito, Daniel Williams, Diego. Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Vebke, Grant B, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Jason Downs, Jay Style, Ken Reichert, Malfunct, Melly, Michael Pitsley, Mike Rayburn, OG Hugo, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Paul Thayer, 
Retro Tech Time, Rick Eulen, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Stephen Wagner, Steve Batson, Steve Rasmussen, Terry Steen, Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tim Thayer, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom Heron, Tom S., Tony C., and William Athing. Thank you ever so much, patrons. It's time for everyone's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord This Week? Jeffrey. Hi, Coco Talk. My name is Jeffrey. I worked at Tandy Radio Shack in the 80s. I have Coco 3s and MC10s. Really enjoy being invited to join you guys on Discord. Long live the Coco. The previous bios were edited for time's sake. Thanks to Jim Rye, Boysontech, Paul Fiscarelli, Nightbeard, Glenside Color Computer Club, and the Coca Talk patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. At discord.cocatalk.live. What you need to know. Get caught up on news with El Curtis. Okay, take it away, Curtis. Okie dokie. Hey, you guys seen that? Yep. Okay, so this is the uh, new logo, I think, for Sibling Rivalry, which is, of course, Tim Linder and his sister, AJ. Um, which is now on their new channel. They've switched to My Drunk Sibling, which is, you know, <laughs> a point of view from both of them. So <laughs> it fits. I asked him as to why they did it, because, I mean, they were doing pretty successfully on his channel, but he said he wants to get his channel back to, quote-unquote, serious projects. And uh, this this will be kind of the fun one. So this is one we kind of alluded to earlier. Um, they played... Uh, Math Bingo, all three sub-games. It's Bingo Math in some spots and Math Bingo in the other. So the manual and the actual game, you know, splash screens defer on this. I don't know why, but that's what they did. And uh, AJ claims to be horrible at math and uh, then finds out that basically since it's a limited like, bingo card style thing, you can just hit the button and just whip the joystick around like crazy. And she actually beat Tim a few times while Tim was, you know, thinking the answer through. So I'll... Uh, Play a little bit of it here. Also, there was a time uh, part during part of the tape here where the deluxe joystick quit working. You know, the auto spring back centering thing kind of screwed up and wouldn't get fixed. So while Tim was trying to fix it, AJ took time to explain how to make a watermelon martini. So there's now actually recipes on the show as well. So I'll play a little bit of it here just to kind of get a feel for it. Now with instructions on how to get drunk. AJ, it's another time for sibling rivalry. I know, and I'm so excited. <laughs> oh my god, we get to play games today. I know, we're gonna we had so <laughs> well, we have many games. Yeah, we got a lot of games today. Uh, AJ. Uh-huh, Tim. Let me introduce you to a game called uh, Math Bingo on the label, but bingo math here on the title screen. <laughs> so, somebody didn't make the uh, art. Uh... <laughs> anyway, I'll let you guys watch it at your, at your leisure there. But that, that was one thing that confused me when I was setting up the web page entry for this particular game myself was why that was different. And then I realized it's a, it's a math bingo game. It's not English bingo, so obviously they don't know anything about English. 
anyway, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, you can definitely see it as a good educational game for younger kids, uh, maybe up to your grade, you know, two or three or something like that. And I, you know, by the time I got to it, it was, you know, a little bit too young for me. But Tim's a bit younger than me. He actually mentioned that he did actually, he, when he went with uh, his mom to Radio Shack, he wanted to get a game bought for him. And so this one's educational. You can get this one. And he actually said he quite enjoyed it. Though he always played it as a single player because his siblings, AJ and their other brother, were older and already past you know the math bingo level stage of, of mathematics. So he just played it by himself. He finally got to play it in, you know, in person with two players. Next up, Erico, and he's been giving us you know fairly constant updates on this kind of hybrid lunar lander style arcade game combined with some adventure game elements and some quests and stuff like that so he's giving us a little bit of a an update here and as he uh, mentions here and described uh, what you're actually seeing on the screenshot landed at silico sat i'm not quite sure what that means it will fly the top world layer from right to left every three days i believe you have to drop your relics there to really score so that's part of the collection thing we have to find these relics and bring them back so it's it's an interesting take. I mean, when he first was posting the original screenshots and even some of the animations, it just looked like a multi-screen lunar lander. But actually, there's a lot more to it than that. So I'm looking forward to trying it. It actually looks like a pretty interesting concept. Next up, uh, Paul Shoemaker, fresh off of Ghost Rush. And before that, he's done you know poker squares and, and he's ported it to multiple platforms and different uh, graphics hardware, like the Coco 1 and 2 or the Coco VGA or the Coco 3 with pallets, et cetera. Uh, he's gotten given a sneak preview of his neck project here, which he's calling Cap Cops and Crooks. And it's based on the Activision Atari 2600 game called Keystone Capers. Now, he's mentioned here in the, on the description here that he's worried that it might turn out to be beyond his current capabilities, but he's going to enjoy trying. I think he'll be able to do it. He's got enough help in the community from Simon and others here that I think if he gets stuck somewhere, they'll do it. But the the video actually looks pretty good. It's just, it's fairly short, but I'll just play a little bit. He's just showing some of the compiled sprites running across the screen. No sound, I should mention on this. So basically just three of the uh, sprites running across. I do like how he's actually kind of made the little rainbow type uh, logo for that Activision used to use. And in fact, I think if I remember the Pitfall 2 for the, the Coco actually did it in artifact colors, but he's actually kind of got, you know, the RGB, well, in this case, R-Y-G, but um, he's kind of duplicating that style of the logo on the bottom there. So I'm looking forward to that because that is one game, as far as I know, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe the Dragon or the Coco ever had a clone of Keystone Capers that I remember of. At least I've never come across it. Anybody else in the panel ever heard of one or maybe even a basic uh -huh. version of Rainbow or something? I'll take that as a no. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> well, that's the problem. Everybody fell asleep, but it wasn't because it wasn't an answer. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Next up, uh, Johan Kolman. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. We covered him a week or two ago about the Shogun game. Now, this is Shogun is based on an ancient board game, which you can kind of see a small little picture on the bottom. These pieces on kind of looks like a checkerboard. But he's actually done a conversion of this game to the MC-10. And he was working on it the last time we talked about it. And you have some people play test it. I doubt it's released. You can actually get the C-10 image in the MC-10 group on Facebook if you want to try it. And if anybody has both an MC-10 and a Coco, 
might not be a bad idea to grab the MC10 version, port it into the Coco, and actually get it up and running there too. Because that's I don't believe we have a version of that game either on the Coco at this point. But it's available for download now on Facebook. So any of you with MC10, here's another new game for you. <clears throat> Next up after that, uh, Vincent Tran, as he's known on Facebook, has his own uh, YouTube channel called Backhand Sandwich. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it sounds interesting. And he did some Coco game. Sorry. Is that a slap? <laughs> <Could be. laughs> um, but anyway, he's done some Coco game, three gameplay videos with his multi-pack, his Coco SEC, and real floppy drives. So in this case, he's loading Defender, Glenn Hewlett's transcode, from real floppies. Uh, and he's actually using both of them because it lets you have the option because it's a two-disc game. So I won't play the whole thing here. Now, the one thing that's a little bit odd on his videos, which I'll mention, is that for some reason the screen is reversed. It's mirrored. So everything's backwards. You notice that the red break key on the screenshot here that I've got it paused on is on the completely wrong side of the keyboard. That's because everything's backwards, including any text and anything else. So it's a multi-pack. Yeah, well, the whole the whole video is backwards, and all of his videos using the Coco are backwards. So he did a few. I'll play a little bit of this one just to show you loading it off a uh, disc. I won't play you too much of like Joust or something. I will play the Donkey Kong remix because a bit of a story behind that one. I was just bringing back memories for everybody here of actually loading discs instead of using the SDC. <laughs> oh, yeah. I should mention he has an SDC, too. He actually shows it in the Joust video. But... What's, what's this disc thing you talk of? <laughs> <laughs> See, mine Lucky went faster gold. than that, Rick, because I patched it for six milliseconds. So. <laughs> so so those were more zit, 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 zit. Yeah. Well, they sound like a PC, basically, because that's the speed the PC ran it. The Apple floppies, of course, rattle when they first boot because they boot the OS off, and then they swish as they go. Yeah. Did someone say floppy disk? Well, Nitrous <laughs> 9 or OS 9 for me was the same way because, you know, the DOS command still ran at 30 millisecond by default, but as soon as it, you know, loaded up the kernel, it was kicking it up to six and load the rest of it. <laughs> and then just about the time you switched off the floppy drive, it got fast. Yeah. <laughs> And then I went to the hard drive and like, I'm not touching floppies no, again. No, never again. So I have to for my games page because I had to pull some off there that aren't on the archive or the archive versions are screwed up. Anyway, I won't play the whole video. He actually does some gameplay of, of it as well. Joust, he did actually off of uh, the SDC. Like I said, I won't bother playing that one because we've all seen that before. Now, this he's one, I don't know how many of you were involved with the discussion on Facebook on this, but he's getting some weird sound effects happening on uh, Donkey Kong Remix by Sockmaster, the transcode. And there was some speculation when I was reading the comments earlier. I didn't get a chance to kind of go back and follow it up after, but it sounds like there's some speculation that his uh, multi-pack he's got here, because he's got it loaded up with four cards, might not be upgraded for the Coco 3, and maybe that's causing it. Um, the game plays, but the sound's off. So as, first of all, has anybody heard of that happening before? I do notice what there's there's some ghosting, I guess, between the gimme addresses and something else. Is it basically the reason for the upgrade or does locking out different certain floppy lane? controllers in that? Well, you should be able to get yeah. what he's doing, I think, um, because he's only got two controllers and the SDC recognizes there may be another controller sitting right in the floppy slot. But or um Wow. He's got so many cartridges. Maybe uh, the power supply is not keeping up. Well, right. Uh, <laughs> there is that the, or, uh, 
there's an interrupt happening from from uh, one of the other cartridges that's upsetting the sound routine. It's just yeah, it might wait. depend on what you have as a mixer because I mean I run my multi pack. My I mind you, I've got a Mega Mini, so you know it doesn't have that ghosting problem. But I normally have like a Echo SDC, a real floppy drive, speech sound pack, and an Orchestra ninety in mind. So if it's power, I I would probably have the same problem. But my Dunkery mix one's fine. But is this one strapped so the interrupts all work? And where is the selector switch? Because we can't see, so I don't know. Okay. Anyway, I'll I'll play it and I'll I'll turn the volume up a little bit here so you can kind of hear the weird sound he's getting. Like that's supposed to be the death sound of Mario spinning, which is supposed to be like you know type thing to this staticky rap rasping thing. It sounds like an interrupt issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's got to try it without the uh, multi pack on its own. Or, okay. or without two floppy controllers, and well, that too, yeah. Well, yeah. If, it, if it's not strapped and he's trying to do all this stuff at once, that makes sense. Okay, David Ladder, if he's still on the call, he's our floppy expert. I don't know if he's, you know, he's probably hooked up four floppy. Don't start him. Because the way the multi pack is, you can only only one slot can have an interrupt. So if the sound thing needs an interrupt, it's not available. Yeah, but would that matter? Because if it's a gimme timer interrupt, which I'm pretty sure is what Sock's using, it shouldn't have anything to do with multi-pack at all. Well, now, what, what's the sound-producing device need? Is... Well, the sound-producing device is software. This works on a oh, rock. Using, sound. Okay, never mind. I'm, I'm, I'm off track. I don't know. Frank, Frank's saying the same thing. Um, in the in the chat, you know, retro rewind. He said, "Could be an interrupt." And yeah, I mean, the, the timer interrupt that the the, uh, the programmable timer in the gimme. I'm pretty sure it's what Sox using for the background sound here. So that oh, should I, have nothing to multi back. I would. I think. I think Ron though has hit it right on the head. The CM8 has a door. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's Like that's time and space have warped at this point. So that's. Uh... <laughs> He he he's got the he's got the uh, the uh, uh, the issue there. Frank says it could be bus lag, and he's he's a hardware guy, so he knows a lot more about this than I do. I know hair doesn't conduct electricity. That's all I know about hardware. So. Right. <laughs> but yeah, but standard troubleshooting. Start off with the basic and work your way up. Yeah. So disconnect the multi pack. I, yeah. I do, if I remember correctly, he did mention his multi-pack is definitely not upgraded for the Kogo 3. And I do know that was to lock out certain addresses from ghosting up into the gimme registers. Yeah, and a lot of weird things can happen. <laughs> It'll work yeah. normally for six months and then nothing will work for the next six months for very strange and non-obvious reasons. It's, yeah. I, love I, did, I just remember Kevin Darling's famous quote because people were telling him, well, my multi-pack, you know, I didn't upgrade. It works fine for my Kogo 3. And he, his, his uh, response and conference in all uppercase was, please tell these people they are stupid. And then he went on to a more technical explanation, which unfortunately I haven't saved. But uh, yeah, because I, I remember him mentioning like it was it would help screw up like RS-232 terminal programs and all kinds of stuff that could go wrong. So anyway, if any of you have some theories or want to join the discussion, actually know what you're talking about, unlike me. Uh, just follow the thread from Vincent Tran on the Coco Facebook. 
Now, this is a channel I've not seen before called Gambling Cabbie, which sounds like a dangerous occupation. Um, so he's did a two-hour stream, and apparently it was live at one point, and uh, he's playing Fexter, the Coco version. He's playing the cartridge version because it doesn't have all the glitches that the, uh, you know, the cracked copy has. Uh, but he's really good at this game. Like you'll notice here on the where I've got it screenshotted, he's already on level eight. He's already wrapped the thing, and he played this straight through. So he's he's good at the game, and he had some tips and tricks of like don't bother shooting all these monsters, fly by them in a diagonal zigzag pattern, go get some things that charge up your health back again, then go back and kill them. And you know, so he's obviously very very much practiced in this game. I'll say. So I actually kind of reach out to him. I don't know if he's in the chat or if uh, he'll maybe catch us a little bit later here, but uh, I'd love to see what other kind of stuff he's up to. And obviously he played this game a lot at some point because uh, he's probably the best extra player I've seen on a Coco 3. And just a little bit of the gameplay there to kind of show you. On level 8, which is, I think, level 3, level 2, basically. Or level 3, but the second round, which gets more difficult. Okay, hopefully we'll hear from him because I wouldn't mind seeing what else he's played on the couple back in the day. Next up, I will mute this and let Ken explain what this video is about and why his feet are in the fire here at this point. Yeah. Trying to burn his hair off. <laughs> I'm trying to stay warm. <laughs> really? You guys didn't have the 90 degree temperatures we had here? Uh, it's been a nice 70 to 80 degrees here. So... Uh, we were discussing last week about uh, Grabber and how there was a C64 version of that. So I decided uh, yes. to uh, compare the Tandy version to the C64 version and make a little video out of that. Cool. Just to see what they look like side by side. Now, you actually have some side by side gameplay, I believe. Yeah. Right there. I'll unmute just for that. Now that we have these side by side, we can compare them. So probably the first thing that you'll notice is that the Tandy version is widescreen. Well, that's not how it normally is. Nah. But the fact that I am using a switcheroo going into an RGB uh, solution, it automatically stretches it into widescreen. So it doesn't look bad on games. And it certainly makes 80-column text a lot easier to read. Otherwise, it doesn't affect the gameplay at all. So the first thing we'll talk about is the music. Well, let's give a listen to the C64. All right, now we will listen to the Tandy computer. Now they are... Both and this goes on and on for a while. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, 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 I don't know if I quite agree with you. On, on, on At least my personal opinion of the review would be a little bit different than yours. Um, you said you like the C64 sound better, the songs. I found um, it less uh, grating. <laughs> whereas I found it slower tempo and boring. It didn't add excitement to the game as much as the Coco version did. I guess, did. yeah. But, I mean, personal opinion. Nick, uh, you're you're kind of a connoisseur of sound here. What, what's your opinion after hearing the two samples? 
Uh, the 64 version and sounds a bit cleaner. Yeah, uh, I agree a bit there. Purer. Yeah, the, the 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 tempo. Yeah, the Coco one is faster. They, the C64 would be way better if they sped up the tempo a little bit. Like it would be far superior to the Tandy. As it is, I think the C64 is just oh, slightly yeah. better, just because it doesn't have the quite the harsh tone to it. But all Tandy sound really does have that harsh tone almost. At least on yeah, the older yeah. games. Yeah, and whereas for me, the, the the tone, I mean, that does make a difference. So that'd be a slight plus in C64. But for me, the faster tempo fits the game better. So for me, as an overall effect of having a background music in the game, to me, it, the Tandy one's superior, just based on that. Now, if you get into the actual I mean, waveform smoothness, I'd have to agree. Yeah, the, the C64 smoother. For the, for the C64, that was a pretty poor tune, really. I mean, <laughs> it, it's capable of much better than that. Mm-hmm. So now I will mention too, like I, Ken, I don't know how far you've gotten in Grabber um, playing it. Cause I know one thing you'd mentioned that you kind of got sick of the tune. Cause it's a, it's a, what a 10, 15 second tune that keeps repeating type thing. Well, that's, yeah. I, that's per level. I, I mean, yeah. I do realize it changes each level that you go through, but um, that's something I've never really cared for in video games is the repeating tunes over and over after playing for like an hour or so, it starts to drive me crazy. So are you, are you sure you and Nick aren't anyway. brothers? Brothers? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what he keeps telling me. <laughs> and just why he puts in music on off in his games. That I And I wish that more games did that. So it's, it's not the fact that the Coco sounds great ingratiating a little bit to you because it's a harsher sound that it makes you say that that's in general, no matter what platform, you just don't like the constant yeah. repeating. That's that's yeah. I don't I I don't like the C sixty four repeating music either. No, so. no. Like I would a, I, a, I would love it if every game had the option to turn the background music on and just have the sound effects, or if turned it if off. If it was a a more detailed tune with more to it, it'd be all right. But yeah, it repeats the same thing after a while. Because uh, if you sit down and play a game for like an hour or an hour and a half or two hours. And that, that just gets to be an earwig and starts distracting you from playing the game. Even when you finish playing, turn the computer off, you're still hearing the music for the next <laughs> few hours. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's helped entice you to go back and play the game some more, I think, isn't it? Or not. <laughs> like in the case of Grabber, because every time you hear a different tune, you know you've gotten to the next plateau. Like the first mm-hmm. couple screens, it plays the same tune, the same maze. Then you get the first bonus round with a different maze, different tune. Once you complete the bonus maze, you get a different maze with a third tune. And then there's a you know second bonus maze with a fourth tune. And then a, you know another set of mazes with another tune, at least as far as I've gotten. So for me, it was always like a bonus because I keep hearing this tune. You, yeah, you're right. You get sick of it because it's like a 10-second repeating loop. But if you got good enough to keep progressing, you get new tunes. You wonder, what does that next tune sound like type thing? So for me, it was an enticement. And I would love to be able to listen to it for maybe two cycles, maybe 30 seconds, and then turn it off. <laughs> then turn it off, yeah. I don't, so like I, guess, the, uh, I don't like the C64's purple background, though. I think they could have picked a better color than that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, I yeah. definitely mentioned that I like the black background and the uh, two different color mazes on the Tandy version way better than the... Yeah, it's like the C64 programmer took a look at Grabber and said, okay, I'm going to convert this from the Coco and the Dragon to the C64. I wonder what other games that we have on both platforms. And he picked Puyam. I went, oh, I like that. 
I'm going to use a pastel color. <laughs> yeah. Now, for for you guys and for anybody else in the panel or even the chat for that matter, <clears throat> on modern games, of course, music is very integral and it's full, you know, three-minute songs and multiple, like an entire album's worth. Are you guys prone to wanting to shut the background music because of distractions or repeatability on those two? Or is it only when you've got really short clips like this that it bothers you? For me, it's the short clips. Short clips, definitely, for me. Yeah. So if it's a longer song, like say Contras on the Coco Three, where it actually yeah, that doesn't if, repeat. Yeah, quite as a often. longer song with more variation. Yeah, I don't mind it, but yeah, repeating over and over and over. Okay, right, and it's one channel too, so everything is in your face. All this, there is no such thing as background music on a Coco. It's in your face, along with anything else. Where well, modern music Nick's. Fiddled yeah. around with having the background music at a softer volume because we do have a six-bit DAC. We can control the volume, unlike some other machines like, you know, the original Spectrum or the Apple IIs and stuff where you had a fixed volume and everything, sound effects, everything else is coming out max and that's all you got. So you could do it, just most people didn't bother <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> now, this is a game where the sound's not integral, <clears throat> like the sound effects aren't integral to the game. You can see visually whenever it's happening. So you can literally just turn it right down and, and yeah. solve the problem. Well, that's the thing. If we just had sound effects and music separate, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. And I mean, Nick, that's what you were shooting for with that add on for Gunstar, too, weren't you? Kind of. Yeah, kind I was. Of. Sort of. But that, that, yeah, that's different though. That's a full, full soundtrack though. That one that you, you want the music on. Well, uh, I do. But sometimes, yeah, I can't turn the volume off because I need the sound effects, but then I got to listen to this chip tune. Yeah, for example, <laughs> Dagrath or Famsler would be freaking impossible if you just shut the volume off. Like, so if they were playing background music, you'd be screwed. You'd have to have that earwig going. Thankfully, I don't, don't think it would be nearly as popular of a game then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You take a look at what like Bruce Moore was playing with Force of Doom and his, his sequel. Where he's got all this ambient horror music playing in the background for mood, but it's softer. Yeah, That's it's very soft. Thing. I mean, if you could, if you could have played the uh, chip tune in the background, really soft is just kind of a background thing, not an in-your-face thing. Then it wouldn't be as annoying. But yeah, and that definitely is possible. I mean, I've, Nick, you've played me some things where you've actually dropped the volume back from your experiments, well, and actually you can notice the difference. Yeah. yeah, my latest game does that, uh, the Jumping Joey. Yeah. Like I know that on modern games, I always go in, first thing I do is turn the sound effects up and the background music down to almost nothing so that it's just barely there. Yeah, and depending on the game, sometimes I don't want music at all. I don't care how good it is or how long it is or how non-repeating it is. It just it distracts me from the game. <laughs> I start you know humming along or I start singing along if it's got singing in it. Like I, I'm not concentrating on the game at that point and I start sucking even worse than normal. So for me, it depends on the game. This one doesn't require a lot of thought. It does require a lot of keeping track of stuff between the two mazes because yeah. you have to jump back and forth. But I don't know. I might be a bit of blinders on in my case because I just, when this first came out, this was the first background music game I'd ever seen on the Coco. So I was just enamored, like, holy cow, how did they do that? So it's always kind of held a special place in my heart and the music doesn't bother me at all. But that's probably just me. Anyway, it's a it's a good review, and and I had not ever even heard of, never mind seen or heard the 
C64 version before you made this video. Just the first I've ever heard of it was last week when I think Nick, you're the one who found it, it was on the C64 yeah. as well. So uh, one thanks of the things I did find a little bit funny about it is that uh, the C64 with its uh, um, dedicated sound chip and everything, and it didn't have any uh, title music to it. Yeah, that was a bit weird. Also, they, they had 64K. Yeah. So they had room for it because Grabber only needed 32. There's another one for Ron. <laughs> and it's interesting how the C64 has the much chunkier graphics. Yeah, I mean, it almost looks like the, the C64 one almost looks and sounds like it's been rejiggered for younger kids. Like it looks like a kiddie game. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like they made it for the Smurf set. But the, the gameplay bucks. is pretty much identical. Does it have the name of the programmer? Is it the same programmer? No, nope, they're different game? programmers. Yeah, his nick, All his right. uh, initials are J-A-W. I don't remember his name off the top of my head. All right. But, James um, something. The C64 Jim? actually has a little bit harder difficulty to it because the uh, bad guys spawn a lot quicker. There's the name there. Your. So this is the uh, title screen. For Hopefully that will be making it here soon. I like the animation but, on the title screen better yeah. on the Coco version, to be honest. By for far. now, it's going to have to be an emulator. Now, as you can see, the uh, John Wood title screen is quite a bit different <laughs> from <Joel. laughs> the Tandy version. And this is the game. Right here. See, if you barely hear the music in the background, that's the level I usually play so it at. <laughs> the gameplay, exactly the same as the Tandy version. I mean, the graphics are definitely smoother. I mean, the animations are definitely a lot smoother on the C64 version. Um, There's a bit just, more it, color variation, too. Yeah. yeah. But it, it just seems like it's... When I'm I not think of the black down, background, the right it just pops the colors on the Tandy better. Yeah, and, the, and yeah, because the, the music's more frenetic on the Coco version, it just feels like there's more tension. Like there's more, I got to get through this type of thing. And the Commodore it almost looks like a laid back, you know, Mexican it, holidays. It was, and I did actually, I got further on the Commodore version, even though I thought it was a little bit harder because the guy, the uh, you get a lot more of the bad guys on the screen at once because they spawn a lot faster. But I think the laid backness of the music and stuff might have added to just chilling out and playing the game and getting further. <laughs> So the next time we have, there's a boat fest, if I can make it next year, I think you're planning on making it too, Ken, is that we'll yeah. have to get Grabber on one of the C64s or Flack, I'm sure will have it for over mm -hmm. here. And actually do the head-to-head -head and have people like go back. That'd be a good competition. Uh, you know, Go back and forth and yeah. try it on both and see how you do on each one. Because I've never played the C64 version in my life. So that'd be interesting to try it. Anybody else here uh, tried it on the C64? Besides Ken? Even in an emulator? I could only find it in one place too. Like it's not on any of the big uh, C64 sites. Nah. So Ken, I don't maybe think it maybe was... for the people that have C64s in the Coke community, the people that are multi-platform, maybe put the image of Grabber for the C64 into one of our regular game channels here, and that will maybe okay. so we get some people to kind of review it for a future episode and maybe do some head-to-head -head comparisons. See what they think. Uh, which channel should I put that in? I wouldn't put it on the challenge. Maybe just the general game. Yeah. This 
this wouldn't be a bad game to do on the Coco in semi-graphics with the background music that I've got, like in... Uh, you and your semi-graphics, Nick, you're just obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, st- I'll stick Hello. a copy... I'll stick a copy of the um, of the uh, tape image in the general game posts. Okay. So for any of you listening or watching this after the fact, uh, go onto our Coco Discord into the general game post channel. And if you have a C64 or C64 emulator that you're comfortable with, maybe take a, a, a download of that and actually give it a shot and then kind of report to us either via email or join the show and, and let us know what you think of the C64 version, which like I said, up until last week, I didn't even know existed. I had no idea. And as far as I know, because it was microdeal, this was probably only sold in the UK for the C64. I don't think it came across the States. Did it? Does anybody know? I don't know. No idea. The fact that you couldn't find it on a lot of the big C64 sites, I'm kind of guessing they probably never did. Hey, yeah, good not, video. Not I, I well known. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, no, good. And last on the game on news. So 64 Gamer on YouTube. We did cover him before. You can see on the second row. Uh, where he did Time Bandits and Color Space Invaders and Puyan. And you can see a little bit of BC Bill below that. So he did some other ones. And he does some other stuff like you know uh, NES and stuff. He does you know, Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers. But he did three other Coco games this past week. So he did Chucky Egg, which, of course, is a dragon game that got ported to the Coco. And I think Tomix sold it for briefly for a while. It's kind of when they were doing the uh, let's borrow games from uh, people from over apart, across the sea here and not tell them about it so we can sell them for profit. Does that happen to you too, Nick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where Donut Dilemma suddenly showed up. Yeah. And Chucky Egg. I think it was even the same ad in some cases. Uh, but he did a couple of years. He played Cash Man, which is, of course, a classic. Uh, and then Firecopter, which is, of course, Dale Lear. And he did quite good. He got well over 100,000 points, which is better than I think I usually do. So um, if you've not seen those games, he's got some pretty decent you know, gameplay videos showing multiple levels of each. Um, so I'm going to keep an eye on his uh, channel. I know I've reached out to him, and I, he thanked me for mentioning it on the news. I don't know if he's going to show up in the chat here, et cetera, but uh, love to have him on talk about his, his experience with the Coco in the past. And I will mention one thing here. All of his Coco videos are done on real hardware. None of that stuff is emulator. He's playing on the real thing. So The real thing. Yeah. So that's it for the game on news. Do you want me to go straight into the regular or... Yep. Okay. Oops. So bring it up, it's kind of hiding off the bottom Okay, you guys seen that? Yep. Yep. Okay. So Daniel O'Connor, and she's been to the Adelaide Retro Computer Group meetup a few times and taken pictures, so she had her own display here. So she took her large white case Australian Coco 2, which we knew in North America as the Color Computer 64K, which came out in the fall of 1983 here, I think pretty close to that in, in Aussie land. And she had picked up a newly purchased C64. So that's her table display she's showing there. So I'll just kind of zoom it up. Um, this isn't the general photos of the entire show. She just wanted to concentrate on, on some shots she took of where she was and her Cocoa setup, et cetera. So you can see a couple SDCs, et cetera, there. And so the tag says Color Computer 2. 
Well, I that's what it was called in Australia, wasn't it? It wasn't called the 64. Yeah, yeah, that that was uh yeah, that's uh, the the very first color computer twos were that. Yeah, and here they were the shrunken case ones. And we're sold yeah, about six we weeks got after this. Soon after, yeah. And there you can the see a model one hundred left of it. Sorry, go ahead, Ken. The the perfect setup for uh, playing head to head on Grabber. Yeah, it's C64. even more yeah. there's no monitor cool. hooked up to the C sixty four, so you don't have to see it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You can see some Tandy, like a Tandy Model 100 to the left there and some other, you know, portables and stuff. Uh, An Amstrad. 600 back behind it? Yeah, that could be. That's a 40 by 8 or whatever. No. 80 by 16 screen or something. That's kind of a general broad view of some of the tables set up. It's a good variety of machines out there anyway. Hmm. And I think she snuck this one here just for Nick. Oh, she's pipes. got pipes running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and apparently she has a, a dedicated STC just for pipes too. You know, I, sure it why, seems it. <laughs> why would one one would want to do that? But okay. That Suspicious software. Yeah. I'm assuming but, bribes yeah. were involved. That <laughs> <laughs> well, was worth it. Um, um, <laughs> notice her comments on the. Uh, on the post. Uh, and Nick see. Randy's noticed anything familiar and I was going to go, yeah, uh, yeah I didn't reply. Right? I'll have to uh, reply to it. Get a lot of the size of that uh, floppy drive. <laughs> For the 64, that is. Well, that had its own computer in it too, didn't it? Yeah, didn't that, was, own... that was another 6502. So it was yep. a dual processor system. Yep. <laughs> yep. And yet the floppy ran five to ten slow. times slower than anything yeah, else on the planet. Slow, so, too, so slow yeah. figure. I think they actually leveraged the Microsoft deload thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, they forgot to shut it off from 300 baud, though, was the problem. Right. <laughs> it does seem to have the box for the 64, so it'd be oh, well, worth a bit if of I money. understood it, it, she purchased it either at the show or just before something because she said it was new to her, too. So. Oh, you reckon the 64 is um, Danny's as well? It is. Yes. She she mentioned the that in the trader. Post. The trader. Closing in on us, I swear. Ken, I Danny. Can't, <laughs> I can't speak. I've got one too. <laughs> don't look. Don't look. <laughs> so, Tim Linder, in addition to doing the. Uh, Drunk Sibling Rivalry series is also still doing his regular stuff with MAME. And so one thing he's been trying to hunt down for a while, they've got a CM8, a picture of a CM8 that they, you can do be bezels in, in MAME. So you can actually have like a fake screen to look like the old monitors used to look. And he's had one for the Coco 3, the CM8, even with the door um, for quite a long time. But he was been trying to find one of the old uh, TV that Radio Shack sold that was meant to be paired with the Coco 3, the old wood grain. And thanks to uh, Mark, Blair, I think it was. Let me just check if I got that right. Um, yeah. He finally, the, he act, the guy actually owns one of these still and actually took a picture of it. And the nice thing is he took a picture of it while he was had his cocoa hooked up to it. So you can see a little bit of the green glow on the screen. That's not uh, yeah. faked in from MAME. That's actually from the photo that Blair took of the actual monitor that he has. Now, I, I remember seeing these in the store. These were always the demo units that they had the Coco hooked up to at the local radio shacks. How many people here in the chat, if you were you know, in the Coco in the Coco One days, early 80s, how many of you actually had this? I just hooked it up to whatever TV we had at home. I didn't. 
doesn't spend any extra money on that. But I was just wondering if anybody actually did buy this particular monitor. My Cocos were always hooked up to a TV that I found in the garbage and managed to crank all of the color screens <laughs> to get kind of a picture out of it. So, uh, so you were cheap like me. I just took oh, it up yeah. to the TV downstairs, the big living room, you know, wood grain on the floor with legs, 28 inch or whatever. And then I'd keep getting kicked off because they actually wanted to watch a hockey game or something. I'm just looking at the chat here. It looks like nobody there had this monitor back in the day either. Jim Rice says, nope, use the family's 19-inch TV in the living room, which is kind of what I did, except ours was a little bit bigger. I did have eventually get a small, attachy 13-inch color TV up in my bedroom, probably <laughs> around 83, 84. Um, yeah, how much I, did the... How much did these TVs sell for? Oh, uh, Rick, do you remember? They were more than the Coco or about the same? They were a lot. Yeah, once you paid for the Coco, you couldn't afford the TV or vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you bought a drive with it, because then you, you, you're auctioning off cars for that. All right, you're going to make me go dig up my thing catalogs. Is the fact <laughs> that it says Radio Shack color computer, they could really only sell this to people with a color computer. They couldn't sell it as a TV. Well, well, it doesn't well. say color computer. It says Radio Shack Tier City color video. So it tied uh, in yeah, the it Mercedes. So you could hook it well, up to yeah. say an MC10, yeah, or, a, yeah. or one of those Xenix systems, and say hey. <laughs> or what was that? There was a there was a VDG based board that they sold to the Tier City Model One and Three that Steve York was involved with the electric pencil or something. Like it would have worked with that too, I would imagine, but. Uh, Anyway, that's that's what the bezel looks like, and, and many thanks to Mr. Blair for uh, getting that photo of a real one to Tim to put in, so you can actually include that name. And of course, he's got his CM8 one that he's had in there for quite a while, and you can actually change the bezel to match whatever hardware you have to be running. So if you want a period correct, you know, Radio Shack display model style Coco on your main, you can now do the Coco One and the Coco Three using period correct monitors. That uh, Mark B, you're still looking up the price of the uh, video. It may, yeah, I'll see if it's uh, my my catalogs are later ones, but uh, uh, might have been gone by then because I think it was only sold from like eighty till eighty two, eighty three. I've got to give the man props for putting an actual cocoa screen on so the background bezel reflections were correct. That's thinking. Yeah, it'll look a bit off if you actually start playing something like a black screen, like Moon Shuttle, because then of course the green won't match anymore. But uh, right. the boot screen, it looks sort of really nice. This would have been a fairly high tech. Uh, TV, digital display, push button, channel select for the it time. Was. Yeah, it was a 14 yeah. inch too, if I remember correctly. Yeah. LED readout on the channel number, that was pretty new at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right, my, so my later attach, you had the old rotary thing where you just have to click, yeah, click, big click. rotaries, yeah. Yeah. So you could have got this for like a 28, 25 inch instead for the same price with just a plain old clunk, clunk, clunk knob. Oh, way. Alan Huffman said he looked it up. He said, well, that TV was 399 US in 1981. Okay, make it a 36-inch with a clunk, clunk, clunk tuner on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder, is it only RF or does it have composite as well? I wonder. I believe it was only RF when I remember. Right. I, I know we, when we had a couple of our uh, computer fairs in the mall and Radio Shack would lend us, so we didn't have to haul our TVs from home. They would lend us at the earliest ones a couple of these. Because um, they were trying to sell them, of course, so they have them hooked up yeah. to our cocos and running whatever demos. We bring MIDI and all kinds of crap to it. But 
And it's it's really cool that it, we've actually got the period correct on both the Coco One era and now the Coco Three, or sorry, the Coco Three era and now the Coco One era. Okay, next up, Jason Thorpe. He posted a couple things to the Coco Group on Facebook, linking to some GitHub projects that he's been working on. So the first one here is CocoFS. Uh, this is a tool he wrote to interact with the contents of Coco Disk images. Currently, it's kind of hard coded for 35 tracks, single sided, 18 second per track, disk basic images. Uh, but it does let you go in and take a look at uh, you know the files within the system, et cetera. Now we have a few of these projects on the go, and some are getting quite complex and handling OS9 and hard drives and different drive drive geometries and DMK raw formats and everything else. This is a much simpler one. He said he actually did this a while ago and he finally decided to put it up on GitHub so people can grab the source and fiddle with it. So uh, there's a couple of things that it supports. You can do raw dumps of some of the images, uh, of a, the files. It's a command line one, is it? Uh, yes, it looks like it is. Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of waiting for that other one we mentioned last week with the whole GUI. Yeah, yeah, thing. that one. Yeah. And then his second project is he's actually converted the original Motorola 609 floating point library, which was a 6839. It's a ROM chip, basically. But he's actually kind of redid it so that you can use it with ASM 6809. I think it's the assembler he's using. So it's a, a modern cross-assembler type thing. And he's got samples and the whole source code converted over, et cetera, here. So if you guys have ever wanted to look at the actual source code, and it's got all the comments by the original Motorola programmers themselves on how to use all the stuff, and it's based on the IEEE 754 floating point library. So at the very least, it's a very interesting as a historical perspective. And also, if you just want to, to do you know more complex floating point math, you know how would the Motorola people have done it themselves? And there, there you go. It's a whole whack load of code for it. Also, if you just need to steal routines for your own, like let's say you're writing some game that requires some floating point math and you want to you know, not use the basic ROMs type thing and maybe just specialize a couple routines you need, every single one of the different routines is commented with entry and exit parameters and everything else. So it's, you can just steal the parts you need and put them in your program. So for people like Nick and I that hate math, this might be something actually worthwhile using. And, and one thing about these is they're the, the actual format of the IEEE standard, not... Uh... Microsoft versions like the ROM. Yeah, because that's not IEEE anything, right? That was custom to Microsoft. Um, or is it? It changes the the uh, Mantissa and Sign and or something. I can't remember what. Yeah, because if I remember correctly, like I, I've tried comparing like Base Nine's floating point with uh, Microsoft's, and I think like the Sign bit's on the opposite end of the 32 bit number. Sign bit is at, um, is it? So, it's it's at the end of the mantissa and um, it's on on the left end of the mantissa and on the uh, IEEE it's on the um, exponent. Okay, because on basic I it's on it's the, something uh, like that. It's on the far right of the mantissa there. <laughs> so everybody did it differently. I guess it was still the wild west in 1980. <laughs> Which I find kind of odd because Motorola and Microware worked together on Basic 9 because that was going to be their showpiece for doing a high-level language. And why would they do their own internal ROMs one way and then Microware did a complete opposite on the Basic 9 one? That kind of seems kind of weird, but that's what they did. And of course, Microsoft just had to do their own thing. Next up, and Alan Huffman has just joined us in the chat here. So, Alan, if you want to hop on the call to explain, because you got a whack load of stuff I'm going to be covering here in the next little block. Um, so I might have some of this stuff wrong. So if you want to pop in and, and, and explain, you know, 
properly with we're trying to explain here. So the first one here, you posted on Facebook in the Coco group. Um, it's his experiment to duplicate the MC10 functionality of being able to directly type in the graphic characters into a basic program. Normally, you'd have to do like character string 200 or whatever to make some you know weird color semi-graphics block. And you can kind of see in the listing here, these pat kind of patch basic to be able to list the actual blocks embedded into the string type thing as part of a print statement. Now, normally that doesn't work. And normally those are high bit num numbers. Um, so they kind of get interpreted as tokens. So it'll, if you try to do that normally in basic, it'll actually like put whatever the keyword for that basic token is. You might have the word print and the word CHR string and whatever else showing up in the, in the code. And he's actually got it doing the numbers here. So um, I, I think he's trying to get it to the point now where you can actually enter from the keyboard while you're typing like the MC10 does or the Spectrum and some other machines, uh, Commodore Pets did that as well. I think C64 and Big 20s where you can actually type in these special characters right from the keyboard and embed them as strings. So you don't have to like take extra code to build strings like doing a for and next loop and a string equals character string 128 plus character string 143 plus you know, blah, blah, blah. So make it easier and make your program smaller at the same time. So that actually does hold some promise and it prints really fast because these are now just straight print statements. They're not, uh, you know, doing a whole massive string build and dealing with, you know, string stacks and garbage cleanup and all that kind of crap that you get into with a lot of strings. So well, that, that was his first one on Facebook. And then on his, his uh, sub ETH, software site, he's got a whack load of articles here that I'm going to go through one at a time. And uh, Alan, feel free to chime in anytime here. So the first one here, we covered this last week. Uh, his Invaders 09, which is actually included on EOU, he released a source code for it last week, and he's released a source code for various versions. You kind of see how the program advanced as he you know, fixed bugs, added features, et cetera. But he mentioned that he had also given it to Jamie Cho. So Jamie Cho, and he's done a recent Space Invaders clone with digitized sound effects. And I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's Coco 3 only. It's even got 6809 options, Orchestra 90 options. That's using that sprite library, that uh, Dynasprite, I believe. I'm trying to remember that Richard Godekin wrote, I think, originally. So Jamie's done a fair bit of stuff there. And that Space Invader game, it actually probably is the most advanced Space Invaders we've seen on the Coco 3. Uh, sorry, Nick. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> at any rate, he had ported it to the MM1, I guess, back in the 90s, which, of course, is OS 968000-based system. And uh, then he ported it to classic Mac OS on the 68000. And then I guess he's kept it going because, as Alan mentions here, it's been reported to the Mac OS for the PowerPC, then the Intel x86, and now even the M1 ARM based CPU that, you know, the current ones, the M2 just literally came out. So I haven't seen any of these yet. I haven't had a chance to download them and try them yet, but it'd be interesting to see what they did. But uh, there's a source code from Jamie and also the executables are pre compiled for if you want to try it if you have a Mac. And it sounds like any vintage Mac from 1984 till now, there's a version available for you type thing. And of course, he goes into some of the details like Mac's got all the stuff you're downloading from an un, you know, unapproved developer type thing. So you have to do some wonky crap. But basically, it looks, it looks pretty similar. I mean, there's a few subtle differences here. Um, like the color of the sauce here is a little bit different, et cetera. Uh, it's got more digitized sound effects, et cetera. No joystick support, so it's keyboard only. The Invader graphics are upside down. Now, they were spinning oops, spinning disks, so it's kind of probably hard to tell, but it has to do with the way the shading of the shadow works. Okay, Alan just said, no voice here. I have a Tuesday article scheduled every Tuesday through October. 
currently working on articles to release every day during September. Actually, that's coming up not too far from now either, so that'll be interesting. So anyway, if you guys have Macs and you want to see how the Invaders game progressed from Alan's original vision, which is on EOU for you to try, uh, you can download them from Jamie Cho's site, including the source code. Next one up, Color Basic Attract Screen Part 5. Now, this has got the spinning rows of colors going around the outside that were quite popular, clowns and balloons, popcorn, a lot of the data stuff, Steve York stuff used this kind of thing. Now, they've been trying to do it in basic, and he's gone back and forth with several people that have given him suggestions for speeding things up. So in this particular one, Jason Pittman actually submitted multiple times. They've gone kind of back and forth to try to get it running faster and faster and, and doing different things to try to get it to work properly. Um, sometimes there's that little glitch. That if you try to print something on the screen, the far lower right corner, it'll immediately scroll the screen because the way basic works. So you have to poke that one manually. Uh, so they went back and forth and, and did a few things here. You can see like up variation one, variation two, variation three, and, and trying to get it you know running a bit faster and faster. And it's actually running a pretty good clip. But then uh, Alan kind of decided that uh, it's still not quite as fast as he would like it. So uh, William Astle, who's very active in our Discord, of course, and is the lost widow that made LW ASM, LW Tools, et cetera, gave him a little machine language routine that actually goes through and, and does this. And it's a nice small routine. It's not very big. And um, I don't know if Alan's got any comments on that, but it uh, gives an explanation line by line of how the thing works. And it's lickety fast because it's assembly. So, <laughs> and uh, this is one thing that uh, Alan's really good at is kind of breaking down things and explaining them in, in detail and going through code, going through algorithms, et cetera, explaining how it works. And he's on the same learning journey as we are. He just did, you know, ahead of time to write the article. So you'll see him kind of changing his mind or figuring out things, you know, in real, in almost real time, basically, as you read through the article itself, which I always find a fascinating way to write rather than just, you know, pre-planning everything out and then just doing a quick summary. This is more like YouTube videos where you're watching somebody figure out what's wrong with a dead computer as opposed to here's a dead computer cut. Here's how I fixed it. It doesn't take you through the learning process of trying to figure out how did you figure out what to fix type thing. And that's kind of what he's doing at the software level here. And then the other one here on his blog, uh, which is also further responses to a previous set of articles he's done on the Draw Black Challenge on 6847. Now, this one I, I might need a bit of help from Alan on. So I said completing his hat trick for the week. And if you're a hockey fan, you'll understand that reference. If not, you probably won't. Um, this particular one looks like he's trying to draw black lines in the semi-graphic screen in basic, because uh, that's the one color you can mix with any other color in the background. Um, otherwise, you've got that two by two pixel. You've got to pick black and a color. And it's got to be consistent within the, that four pixel uh, range. So they were going through, and this is in basic again, but trying to make it so it draws faster and going through different optimizations, uh, making sure it works in every case, because they, they'd mentioned that uh, Alan did this one test, which actually broke it. And then Sebastian, uh, what's the guy's full name here? Sebastian Tepper is the one who responded with these, these versions. Uh, Sebastian actually came back almost immediately and fixed it up and sped it up while he was at it using some of the tricks that Alan's covered in some of his basic things. Like if you want a zero, just put it period. It processes that a lot faster than period zero does because the way the basic interpreter works and use hex when you can like ampersand and H or ampersand H I should say, because it interprets that much faster. It knows it's a hexadecimal number can kind of skip a lot of you know parsing and crap. So there's a bunch of optimizations. And then Alan tried a couple other optimizations himself to try it, but he didn't see any speed gains on it. I like this. This line in particular here was pretty funny. 
anytime I see timer in the mix, I get giddy because then, you know, so, you know, they're trying to speed things up. So Alan, you should help me out with the base combined stuff. Cause I got timer stuff in there too. Anyway, so that's a, that's a good article on, on doing that kind of, uh, you know, low res graphics and doing line drawing routines based on the semi-graphics mode because there's no line drawing commands built in the basic for that. And this one just got released on the 7th, so that's two days ago. And uh, this is a, a special version of Nitrous 90s of use, and he goes into detail in setting up for x -Force. So currently, ease of use, we create a single hard drive image that is common to real hardware and emulators. And we did that on purpose because it's just easier and less for us to do. We're lazy. And also, it's easier to support because it's just one single hard drive image that rules them all type thing. And then if you've got a real Coco, that's all you do. You put that in one VHD file in your SDC, you type DOS, you're up and running. If you're running on an emulator, in order to share the hard drive image, we have a special floppy image that you type DOS on, which loads a different version of the OS9 boot that has EmuDisk built in, which was, this, I can't remember who made that. Was Alan DeCock or somebody way back when? It was basically a very minimal, small driver that talks to a fake hard drive controller called EmuDisk, and uh, that works on MAME, and it works on VCC, and it works on OVCC. So basically, when you boot off the floppy image there, it loads in the OS9 boot with that driver in it, and then immediately switches over to that virtual hard drive image and finishes the boot from there. So you're back on the hard drive image that works on the SDC. No changes required to the hardware. Now, what Alan wanted to do was boot using IDE. Now, that was one of the more popular interfaces for the hard drives. We had SASE first, uh, Disto and Kenton, or Kenton did SCSI, I guess. And then we had SCSI and IDE that came out. Uh, there was IDE from um, Glenside originally, and then I think Market Cloud 9 was selling IDE interfaces. SCSI was sold by multiple people, including Disto and Kenton Electronics and a few others too. So IDE was probably the last of the ones that was actually fairly common because that was using dirt cheap IDE drives that PCs. And that was the same reason that the Burke and Burke original MFM controllers uh, adapter really sold well because I was using dirt cheap XT, IBM XT-based drives, rather than the rare, more expensive SCSI and SASE. So he wanted it to boot up on IDE. So he wanted to do it in XROAR. And XROAR only supports IDE. It doesn't support the MU disk driver. So you could not use EOU as it was on there. So Mike Furman actually made a special version where he put the IDE drivers in instead of the the standard drivers that we have, and you can boot that straight off the same, I think it's an HDB DOS, HDB DOS uh, kind of partition hard drive image so that you can actually boot directly off that. So what Alan does here is he goes through and he's got a download link where you can actually get all the ROMs and everything you need, XROR itself, the ID driver, et cetera, the disk images. You just download it, tells you how to set it up and get it up and running. And he's got it running on Windows and on OS 10. So if you have either of those and you want to try it, pre-set up and ready to go. Just go download those, and away you go. Follow those instructions. And then it kind of goes into an interesting history of OS9 and Nitrostein. Um, There's a couple bits there. I later sent him a message to correct a few things because he, he didn't get involved with Nitrostein, I think, probably about a year after it first came out. So some of the early history he wasn't quite sure on. So uh, he'll be doing a slight update to this story uh, if he hasn't done it already. Uh, but it's, 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 it's pretty interesting. And for those of you that prefer XROAR, over VCC, OVCC, or MAME. And it is one of the easiest ones to set up. This is a nice, easy way to get EOU running on that, which you couldn't very easily before. So thanks to for Alan kind of collecting this all together and giving the instructions to Sarah. And thanks for Michael Furman for creating the boot that actually does use the ID driver so that you can run an extra because that opens up another you know, avenue for people to try out ease of use. 
Did I get that right all out? You can let me know in the chat. Uh, next up. So this is, um, there's a new channel the Amigos are doing called the Amigos Stream Team. Now, what that is, is that they have quite a few friends in the streaming realm of Twitch that do all kinds of videos. They have programming ones from Spectrum. They have hardware stuff. They have stuff for certain specific consoles. And um, what they're doing, because Twitch is ephemeral. It basically, you you put a video live on there, and then within, what is it, 30 days, I think it just deletes itself if, if you don't do anything special. So a lot of these streams were just disappearing after they kind of expired. And, and some of them are really good. So what they've been doing is encouraging people that are kind of friends of the Amigos to let them know if it's okay. And they'll take some of the streams they've done and they'll actually save them here to the YouTube channel. And those don't disappear. They stay around. So in this case, Josh, uh, known as 48K Ram, if you're into the Amigos chat at all, and he's pictured in the upright. I met him at BoatFest, really nice guy. He's got interest in a lot of platforms. He's actually has a Coco 3. And he got one of Frank of Retro Rewind's uh, Coco 3 cap kits. And he does a, a long form video going through and discussing what he's doing. He actually recaps the entire Coco 3 and then does some tests on it afterwards too. Plays the uh, the SID player chip that I'm trying to remember who wrote that for the Coco 3. One that emulates the SID to kind of test it out and make sure it works. But I'm looking forward to seeing more of these where they can have some of their partners kind of like give these videos that they can be saved on the YouTube so they don't disappear after 30 days. And for any of you out there that do streaming yourself, if you want to cover Coco Gaming or Coco Hardware or Coco Programming or anything like that, if you want to partner with them, just talk to Aaron or Boat, and I'm sure they'll be able to make an arrangement for you. It's, there's no money involved or anything like that. But was, keep, hey, what? Curtis, was that SID player another Sock Master? No, it wasn't Sock. Um, yeah, I think it might even say on the title screen. Let me see if we'll find it here. He just briefly ran it just to make sure the hardware was working. But uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Thirteen-inch Radio Shacks here. T, you plan to use your monitor when you get a cocoa? Nice. Josh also is nice. very involved with the chat, so he's watching the chat as he's doing all the stuff too. So he's responding right. to questions, etc. Ooh. Oh, that's fun. We don't like that. This is all in real time, so scripts happen. Never run that one. Let me run the other one. <laughs> that almost sounds like a movie sound effect. Uh, this, so this, this is what I was running during the intro. Let's make sure this still works. Yeah. A little bit of weird graphical stuff going on. That's the, the um, weird graphical again, he's talking about here is like, basically it's composite versus RGB, which is why you're seeing pink instead of grayscale. But it basically it, it emulates a SID chip and software, so you can play like some of the Commodore 64 music tracks. And then that one's from a game. Uh, what is that? Commando or something? Can't remember. It's one I recognize. But anyway, it's 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 a good idea to have these streams because there's so many partners like Frodo NL, who we've had on the show before, um, Happy Coding, who does mostly Spectrum programming. He's been showing machine language programming live for his Donkey Kong clone he's working on right now so he does a stream once a week um obviously 48k ram and a bunch of others they just started the channel here after they kind of talked about it with people but if any of you guys want to do any live streams that you know aren't directly related to coco talk i mean you can do them on our channel obviously we have a bit of partnership where we share streams between each other as far as you know passing off to each other if you know one stream shutting down it'll pick up but if you want something that's a bit more permanent that actually will get saved here and don't want to have to have having your own youtube channel stuff feel free to do it this way 
or we can do it, you know, arrange with uh, Stevie, et cetera, on the YouTube channel we have as well. So I think it's a good idea because uh, the Twitch streaming gets you a lot of interaction with people live. People can ask you questions, give you suggestions, et cetera. Uh, but they disappear after a while. So that's the one bad thing about Twitch. If you don't preserve them yourself, they're gone after 30 days. So anyway, Josh has also done an upgrade to 6309. I don't know if uh, that one he still has the video for. I did watch that one back in the day, too. So he's got some other stuff. And he's probably going to be doing some more Cocoa videos in the future, too. So, Okay, next up here. Now, we've covered all this in retro computing before. He was doing all these YouTube shorts we covered a couple months ago. Now he's getting into more into long-term long -term videos. And he's kind of approaching it from people that are brand new to Cocoa, have never touched one before. So he's going right to the beginners here. So in this particular case, as you can read from the title on the bottom, how to insert blank floppy disks into the Tandy FD502 drive and save and load basic programs. Now, he covers this both from the emulator perspective and from a real hardware on a Cocoa SDC. I won't play the video because most of us know how to do that here that are watching the show. But if you are new to our show or new to the Cocoa, this would be a good starting point because it kind of gives you the syntax and where to get a blank floppy image to put on your Cocoa SDC or into an emulator if you want to start creating your own stuff. And he does... Uh, you know, nice, simple way of, you know, where to find it on the color computer archive to get a blank disk, how to fire up the emulator. His previous one was kind of showing how to set up in VCC the multi-pack and the disk controller and all that kind of stuff too. So, um, you know, basically just does a hello world, shows you how to save it, et cetera, and then, you know, how to put it onto a real SDC if you want to do it. And even talks about you can take those images and copy them to real floppies. If you have the SDC, you can actually use the drive off command to enable one of the physical drives that you have if you have both controllers in your multi-pack. And you can copy from the SDC to a real floppy or vice versa. So he kind of goes into a bit of that too at the end. So if you have any questions on that kind of stuff. But it's, it's good to have some of these beginner videos, I think, for, for people to be able to kind of join the COCA community, especially since we're trying to promote it wider with stuff like BoatFest that aren't familiar. They're used to doing like the loads, you know, quote, what is it for Commodore star, quote, comma, eight, comma, one, whatever the hell to get a directory. Like I have to learn how to do that because it's so weird to us. We're more like the IBM PC style in some ways, but it's good to have, you know, going the other direction, people that are coming from that world trying to learn a Cocoa, it's quite different syntax. So having these beginner videos, I think is a really good idea. Next up, uh, this is Pedro, also known as Rocky Hill on YouTube. And uh, he put up a video showing, uh, as I'll use a direct quote here, a cheap but janky way to get analog audio out of your Coco into a TV's HDMI input using a couple of adapters and a chain. Because one of the problems is we have some HDMI-based solutions going through SCART, et cetera, but basically they usually only do the video. Audio, because of the proprietary licensing fees you have to do to get audio through. Like basically the HDMI video is basically DVI, which is more of a public thing you could do for free, but the audio stuff is not. Am, am I getting that right, Mark? I think I've... That's the right explanation. Okay, thumbs up from Marco Rosa. So basically, this one here, it kind of shows there's a couple of these cheap adapters. And if you daisy chain a couple of them, you can kind of get around all this. Um, now, it's three minutes long, the video. I think it's a worthwhile maybe to play it all the way through. Um, I know Pedro's in the chat. And also, you guys in the panel, do you think it's worth me playing the full three minutes? Or would you rather just get a little clip? No, go ahead and play it. Okay. Turn the up just a bit. Anyone who has the RGB to HDMI board knows that it doesn't do audio. 
does video great, but it doesn't do audio. For whatever reason, it doesn't do audio. You can look it up, go to the project page, there are the technical reasons. Now, somebody has come up with a very clever, inexpensive, practical, albeit janky way to actually get audio into the HDMI port here. And so the way he does it is you get a simple HDMI to VGA converter, like 10 bucks on Amazon. You get a VGA to HDMI converter with audio input, eight bucks on Amazon. You hook the two together. <laughs> I'm sorry. You hook the two together, you know, the VGA side, <laughs> right? And then you take the audio from, in this case, the Coco, and you plug it into here, which I've gone ahead and wired up already. So I'm gonna plug this in. from the Coco, and then I follow this guy. Now I'm going to turn on the HDMI, the RGB HDMI, okay? Should be on, and now I'm going to turn on my Coco. And we should have a nice green screen. Well, actually no, Megabook. And so, we should be hearing Megabook, but we don't hear Megabook. Why? What happened here? Did that break something? Oh, this is not all the way. Amazing. And to prove that it is that, that it's, you know, it isn't some other speaker there, I'm gonna play Megabug, right? I'm gonna control the volume with my remote. down I'm going down because this is the part I understand and now I want to hear it say we gotcha so where is that there we go we gotcha. and that's over the HDMI so those of you that have this and they want HDMI coming out of their cocoa or rather audio coming out of their cocoa and they already have the HDMI out can get similar adapters real cheap on Amazon and put it together. Again, it's sort of, you know, uh, Rube Goldberg-ish, right? But it works. There you go. So yeah, I thought that was a pretty, pretty cool solution because, I mean, the problem with getting the licensing to do this, you know, legitimately is extremely expensive. I think they charge thousands of dollars to get a license to be able to just add sound to an HDMI cable, basically. But of course, all these <laughs> manufacturers in China stuff have paid bulk licenses so they can sell these things for cheap. So for a couple parts, you pick well, up for like eight, 10 bucks may, each. Maybe they paid it and maybe they didn't. And <laughs> nobody knows what is on sale on Amazon for sure. So, yeah. Well, so the solution's there and it's not thousands of dollars of licensing fee. So, yeah. Yeah. Because that was one thing that always annoyed me about HDMI on, on a lot of the retro things is that it usually is video only. And you have the external speakers, which, which you mean some people have, but some people don't or don't have the room for external speakers. So it's a better solution. And I, I personally, 
my whole cocoa system is pretty janky to begin with. So uh, adding more jankiness to it is not a big hindrance. <laughs> so thank you, Pedro. And, and thanks for talking about a bit in the chat there. And thanks for making the video. And of course, thanks for doing the duplicate motherboards and pepper chip, et cetera, too. So we can start getting, you know, cocos replaced um, in the future here, you know, as, as the, the, the old circuit boards get cracked or whatever and start to die off the wheel, getting replacements because you're very integral in that whole project. Next up. Okay, so Jim Gary posted in the MC10 group on Facebook a link to this personal computer world magazine, which is a fairly large magazine cross-platform from the UK. And in November 1983, she actually had a review of the MC-10. It also has a review of the Aquarius, and it sounds like they preferred the Aquarius over the MC-10 in general. But it was two different reviewers, so it's kind of hard to tell for sure. Um, but I think they have a lot of the same complaints that we did. So let me find it. It's page 154. Pretty sure I don't care for either if I had to have it for my day-to-day -day driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here we are. The, the Aquarius, they actually shrank the ROM by making the floating point smaller by reducing the precision. Yeah, and they did some benchmark tests. Now, I don't know. I can't remember. I didn't read the Aquarius review too closely. So obviously, I don't remember what the hardware specifically is, but they're basic on the certain benchmarks that they have. I think they have eight they use in their standard reviews. It was about twice as fast as the MC-10s. And I know the MC-10s basics a little bit faster than the Cocos. So. It wasn't about twice as fast, but it was faster than pretty much any of the main computers. But it was faster because it had lower precision. Okay. Oh, that's why. Okay, that makes sense then. So uh, we were talking about earlier with Alan's article about uh, getting basic to embed your character string codes. And you can see here what they did on the keyboard in the MT10, which also did in the Spectrum, the Commodore VIC-20 and the C64, is that you could hold down a control key. I think it was. It was a chip, I can't remember. But basically you hold that key along with these keys and you can see the little graphic it would draw. So you can actually get all the little semi-graphic checkerboards and lines and empty and all that kind of stuff. And of course, they also had the uh, quick way of entering in your actual keywords and basic itself to type in as long as you memorize them all. <laughs> or you can just do it by hand, but that uh, kind of shows right. that. Fun fact. But, um, but I'm sorry. I was going to say on the ZX81, that wasn't a feature. They didn't have a tokenizer. So you just kind of were entering every possible ASCII code by a well, key. Plus, that had a keyboard that was even worse standard stuff from. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, and you know there was there was so there was no there there, so you got to sneak keywords into strings and do all kinds of fun things because there was no tokenizer. It was all a sham. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically they 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 basically say the same thing. I think most of us have said about the MC10. Um, if it had been out a year or two earlier, and I think they even specifically mentioned if it had been out a year earlier, it wouldn't have been too bad. Yeah, yeah. right. Actually, right here on the screen. The MC10 supports a basic known as a microcolor basic. A year or two ago, MC basic would have been acceptable, though uninspiring, because it doesn't have like line editing of any sort and you know, it's fairly limited. It has a couple of nice things like the uh, saving and loading of arrays is something that was cool. The Coco didn't have that, for example. But by the time it actually got released in 83, 
that was getting pretty far behind everybody at that point. And of course, they were used to some of the BBC micros and stuff that actually had, you know, the advanced basics that were similar to Basic 9 built into the ROMs too. So, yeah, but a BBC micro was ridiculously expensive. <laughs> yeah, but it was also in every school. So it kind of encouraged people to yeah. stick with it. They did like the printer. They said it was quite small and compact, cheap, and it actually printed as well as most of the dot matrix at the time. It's nice. Mm. Actually opened it up. He didn't like the fact that all these cables were hooked up and you could basically open it, only open it up 90 degrees without having to unplug a whole bunch of crap. And here's the benchmarks he was talking about. Like, I don't have the benchmarks handy because I didn't bother to look up the November 1982 issue. But this is 1.5 seconds, 9.1 seconds instead of these benchmarks. And you'll, I'll, I'll just use BMA as an example. So it took 112 seconds for the MC10 to run this. The Coke would probably be a little bit slower. Um, which, so they don't say what they did. No, you'd have to pull out that November, 1982 issue to find out what the benchmarks actually were. What, what magazine was that? Personal computing world, I believe. Okay. Uh, yeah. Personal computer world. That's a UK based magazine and it's big. It's, 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 it's bigger, bigger than rainbow was in its heyday. Like this issue here. And that was the November uh this is the november 83 issue 83 oh that's right 83 is when it came out so it's over 400 pages i mean it's covering multiple platforms but it's like an 80 micro size like it's a decent size magazine and not one i've ever really looked at before so and cross-platform always makes it interesting you can kind of see what everybody was doing at once and they talk about the dragon they talk about the coke one stuff in the review as well so that was cool Looks like it's up on the uh, archive.org site. Yeah, should be. It's also on um, worldradiohistory.com. Why it's there, I have no idea. <laughs> Doesn't quite make yeah. sense. Okay, well, so next step. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that when you were scrolling through it, it reminded me of a computer shopper, like 800 pages of everything in the world, all in a giant home that you could anyone else ever pick that up well computer shopper for me was different because it was like 90 percent ads there wasn't as many articles yeah, there, was, there was a couple there was of some and there was a cocoa specific column in there for years and it was either cheap or free i don't remember it what, was cheap for that size it was cheap but it was basically ads like it was like a classifieds of the computer world almost you know, but like your scroll through kind of gave me a heavy vibe of computer shopper there i'm going yeah there's probably a whole lot of stuff in this thing yeah. It's going to go up on all kinds of archives. <laughs> this reminded me more of 80 Micro because it has listings and it was covering like the Model 1, 2, 3, 4, oh, nice. 16, 12, yeah. et cetera. That's, that's, that's what it's kind of looking like to me. Yeah. I was going to say Byte, but Byte was more, except for the very early issues of Byte, they didn't do too much programming. It was more like, here's the new machine, the new chip, the new architecture. It was more hardware-oriented. They would talk about software, but in broad terms. It wouldn't be like, here's a source code listing that does this. I early bite did, you know, like the late seventies bite, but by this time, 83, they weren't doing that as much. Next up, we have an update from Richard Harding. So this is the 40th anniversary year of quite a few UK famous computers, the spectrum being one they've already had some celebrations for, but it's also the dragons 40th anniversary. So they've actually got the date set now. Cause last week they were kind of ironing it out and getting details done. So it's going to be October 22nd and the 23rd at Blanco's Hotel in Port Talbot. Now, those of you who have seen some of our looking back at serial numbers, trying to figure out how many dragons were sold, 
will recognize Port Talbot because that's one of the manufacturing plants that actually produced the dragons. So it's right in the hometown of where Dragon Data was. And in fact, they're going to be taking people from the meetup to the actual building because it still exists. It's obviously not Dragon Data anymore, but they're actually going to be like kind of, kind of bringing a tour of, of the people that attend the show to actually take a look from the outside of the building. I don't know if they're going to be able to get inside or not. I'll have to follow that up later. But you, if you want to see where the dragon actually was manufactured, they're taking you right to the right to the building. It's part of the part of the show. So the dates have been ironed out. The hotel it's at. There are some other hotels in the area. There's one or two that are actually a little bit cheaper and are not too far away. Pretty well, if you're decent at walking distances, a little bit, like within a kilometer. So you could probably, if you want to save some money. Now with international flights being what they are these days, I, I'm not sure it's too many people from North America will be able to make it. Which is unfortunate. I would love to be able to make it for this. This, this would have been awesome. But uh, wow. um, I hope they have a really successful show. Hopefully, we'll get to interview and, and talk What's to some of the people. Uh, we've talked to some of them before Hi, on the I'm Dragon Ladonna. specials I'm we've had, both where they've been guests of our show. Uh, we've also been at the Cambridge Museum, where some of the other Dragon meetups have been, and also the General uh, Retro Computer okay. uh, Museum yeah, meetups have been. Oh. And this will be strictly Dragon. So that will be Last I checked, and I didn't check today, but yesterday they already had seven people signed up saying they were going. Uh, and one was actually flying over from Seattle. So at least one person So I really look forward to that. Consumers are winding up for cheaper gas. Madison all Next up, I don't know who Viper68 is on the World of Dragon forms. That's his username. But uh, there was a book you know, back in the day for the Dragon called Enter the Dragon, published by Melbourne House. This was a whole bunch of basic programming type stuff. The national average and there was a bunch of full-fledged basic programs in it. Now, of course, nowadays, who wants to type all those in? Back in the day, we sure would But basically, what he's done is he actually is, has the super cassette, which is actually all 15 basic programs pre-typed in. And he's got them created both in cassette and disc format, so you can get the disc image for the lab file. So if you have a real dragon, or if you have an emulator, you can Loaded in for both discs cassette this high, and this uh, not have to check them in. So if you have that particular book, Enter the Dragon, then you want to try the sample analyst, programs it's mentioning and shows you there. We'll have to check them in. You just grab them here off the hard drive. Now another one I think I forgot to open the window for. I hope I got the right production, but private drilling is stepping up. They've done little to get more oil out of the ground. However, the industry is responding, okay. and the drilling rig count has now exceeded 700 rigs. Which so this is from Brendan Donahue, and I'm probably going to get some stupid YouTube out at the beginning here, so my apologies. Hey, everybody. Maybe not. I got lucky. Uh, so basically what he's done here is he's taken his MC-10, and he's hooked up a Raspberry Pi Pico, and you guys will have to tell me exactly what that is. I've kind of lost track of what every Raspberry Pi is. And what he's doing is he's making a wired USB keyboard adapter for his MC10, because I know one of the biggest complaints to MC10 is the keyboard. Now, while it's still better than a membrane, like an Atari 400 or the original you know, ZX8081, it's still not the greatest thing to type on. <laughs> yeah, Mark's holding one up. Now, I'm assuming that if he makes this a commercial product, it won't quite have as many wires for you to fiddle with as he's showing here, because that would just drive me bonkers. I wouldn't even attempt this. Um, now, this is a five-minute video. It's a bit long. It's the last story I have for today. So I will leave it up to Mark, our director here, and producer. Do you want to play the whole video, or do you want me to just play a clip? Huh? What? <laughs> <laughs> play the whole thing. Okay. Grant, our guy in charge of Cocoa Fest, said play the whole thing. So here we go. I demonstrate a project I've been working on lately. Uh, I don't think this is anything necessarily that new. I think other people have done this before. 
although maybe not quite in this way or maybe not quite on the MC-10. Um, so what I have here is a Raspberry Pi Pico, so a little microcontroller uh, that has onboard flash and so on. And I have a chip called an MT-8808 that is an 8x8 um, matrix of switches that are uh, programmable. It speaks a particular protocol. You send it addresses and a latch value and a piece of data, or you know that, that latch value being a piece of data. And, um, and it will close switches, um, you know, transistor switches inside the silicon here. Um, so then I have that wired up to the keyboard connectors on the MC-10. So the MC-10 has a seven by eight matrix uh, of keys. And um, so an eight by eight matrix is one row too big, but that's fine by me. Um, so uh, anyway, and then I have over here my Raspberry Pi 400 that I'm basically only using for the purposes of, um, you know, easy tool chain uh, access for programming the, um, the Raspberry Pi Pico in C. Um, so I'm using the, the tiny USB open source library. And, um, uh, and then I'm also using it as a terminal. So I'm, I've got a UART output. Right now, the, the Pi 400 is off because I've already got stored in, in the uh, Pi Pico uh, what I need to demonstrate. So uh, let's, I don't know if the monitor, the TV will be visible, but uh, let's power up the MC-10. And there we go. So you'll notice that I have a Coco VGA installed in here. Um, it's not necessary. I did only for this purposes because it's really hard to see the uh, the CRT um, and much easier to read the uh, the VGA LCD panel. Um, and then you know this MC10 probably looks a little bit different than what you're used to. First of all, there is usually a um, a shield over the top of the keyboard connectors and over the the chips near the bottom. Um, I had already taken this out so that I can install Coco VGA in here. By the way, Coco VGA is, I purposely stacked it on a number of different, um, a, a number of uh, sockets just to get it high up enough so that people can see the, the keyboard connectors there. It doesn't actually need to be that high. Um, and then there's some other things on here too, including the, the uh, height expansion that, that I added and gives me places to put a Coco VGA connector in and power and reset and audio jack and so on also will hopefully give me room to put something like this inside of it at some point but we'll get to that later um so anyway without further ado so um the tiny usb stack I'll try to type the alphabet in order here um so the usb stack is interpreting this USB keyboard's key presses, um, collecting all the events, and then um, and then sends the appropriate protocol over to the the uh, chip, the MT eighty eight hundred eight, to open and close the uh, the switches. And it does seem to read the uh, the shift key. Uh, okay, I can get the key mapping that the 
MC-10 has. Of course, there are some problems. Obviously, Shift-2 uh, produces a double quote, just like it would on the MC-10. Um, and you can see some other issues with, well, dash and equal. Normally, they're on the same key on the MC-10. They're different shifts of each other and um, you know semicolon and plus are normally together um, these guys are all okay uh, slash question mark period greater than comma less than so a little more work to do um, I may end up just possibly making two key mappings that maybe I can hotkey between or something like that one that's more MC10 like and one that's more suited to <coughs> uh, a touch typist so anyway, I uh, just thought I'd demonstrate what I was working on. Um, and, uh, uh, oh, and I guess the only other thing I'll mention is, uh, you know, initially I had this powered from a separate power supply. Um, and right now it's being powered from the five volts from the regulator and, uh, and ground there. So anyway, uh, I think that's all I can think of to say about this right now. Um, thanks for watching. So that's pretty cool. I mean, at the rate we're going here, the MC10 is going to be a desired platform with you know modern USB keyboards and Coco VGA, and you know we'll just ditch our Cocos and switch to MC10. I think. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna have to add Sprite or Soundchip or something. Yeah, yeah, it's only got one bit sound. I have to keep remembering that it doesn't have six bit. Like Soundchip, definitely Soundchip. Yeah. All I can think from here is that poor computer. <laughs> there with IVs in both arms. And <laughs> yeah, this this is why hardware scares me, man. It's uh, that just looks dangerous. I'll get electrocuted. Yeah, I, five volts I probably won't die. But you might as you might as well do a case that holds your your uh, keyboard there. You know, and ooh, breadboard over the keyboard. Yeah, like it. <laughs> or just use a Coco too. <laughs> I mean, now, I, sure. I mean, a general question here for doing these, you know, playing these, you know, not super long videos. I don't want to start, you know, regularly playing like half hour videos or something like that. But some people really want page views on their YouTube videos to go up. So they would prefer we just, you know, play a short clip and then everybody runs over and plays the full clip. Um, so for the cases of stuff like Brandon's, like this one or Pedro's, et cetera, where I don't think, but I've never asked. So I'm asking now. I don't think it's important for you guys that you, you know, we're trying to drive up your YouTube views. It's more of sharing the information of stuff you're working on, but I, I do want to check with you guys. And I know Petra's in the chat, so he can answer right away as to whether it's okay for us to play full videos if they're shorter like this, or should I still be just doing a quick clip and then directing people to go to your channel so that your page counts go up your view counts. Um, personally, like in my case, I do have some videos of benchmarks and stuff on my page. I don't care two hoots about YouTube account views so anybody wants to share my stuff on any other podcast or something they're showing go right ahead you have full play the whole damn thing i don't care um but i just want to <laughs> check i'm interested you guys. i'll go look if i'm interested i'll go look at it after the fact so okay and then i'll, I'll kind of wait until the chat catches up see what pedro thinks about that too or Eric or anybody else. If you guys post videos on Facebook, et cetera, like, is, is it okay if it's short? I, like I just said, I don't want to do this with really long videos, but um, should I be checking ahead of time, I guess, I, and make sure that I'm not, you know, screwing up your YouTube empire you're trying to build? <laughs> I 
Okay, Erico says don't care either, but not much to show. Uh, James Deffer Deffer, he actually posted something in the chat here. I think he actually found the benchmarks we were talking yeah. about in that personal computer world story. So yeah, did you want to just in, kind of mention? Uh, the, it, it actually, uh, they list the benchmarks in a separate issue. And are they pretty decent benchmarks? Or are they just basically like the really primitive math stuff they used to they're, use? Or? They're the worst possible excuse <laughs> for a benchmark I have ever seen. Are you being print sarcastic or serious? Then do a four next loop and then print something. You know, it's like, yeah, you didn't really do any math calculations or. Well, plus that uh, depends on the size of the screen. So, I mean, if you have something with 32 by 16 versus 40 by 24, well. Well, and, and when you, whenever you do a, a benchmark that involves scrolling the screen, you also have the, the that heavily favors Z80 machines because they have instructions that do memory moves. Yeah. And uh, and if you look at the Microsoft Basic, they don't even do a 16-bit memory move on the 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 Coco or the MC10. Yeah, they just do one byte at a time, right? Yeah, and so so it's like 20%. Uh, I think it's something like 20% slower than it needs to be at least. Yeah, and it's even faster if you stack blast it. <laughs> well, it's a it's a matter of size. The difference between 16 bits and 8 bits is as far as the code goes is minuscule you know you got maybe an extra instruction or something i i can't remember but at least on the mc10 it's you've got like two increments instead of one but um i, th I think on the uh coco it'd be the same basically same size yeah because load d and uh, store d are the exact same number of bytes as a load a and store a we thought yeah. increment one or dollar double that increment yeah and uh yeah it's and and then if you get crazy i mean i i i have a screen scroll that uh on the for the mc10 for that graphics tech stuff i did that it's pushing to the screen stack and it's pulling from um it's and it's loading with the index register and that geez that's crazy fast yeah well, I did the same thing in, in Nitrous 9, too. Like, I've rewritten the scroll routines there, both 6 8, and 6 9. And, I mean, I've got some of those scrolls running, like, literally two to three times faster than they were on the original. Oh, yeah. So, be, some of these benchmarks that just do that kind of thing, they're more benchmarking how sloppy Microsoft's basic was versus how fast the machine actually is. And that's a, that's a problem with benchmarks in general, because you're a lot of them are, you know, using operating system calls, whether you're calling, you know, direct APIs or you're just using a basic language built in. You're not really testing the machine itself, per se. You'd have to write machine language programs literally to do that, to try to see how fast the machine can really go. Uh, you're basically you know, measuring basic interpreters on top of the machine. So it's kind of hard to, that's why benchmarks don't really make much sense back then. Well, Microsoft, they make some, but. Microsoft had all that stuff to make it so you could expand basic and did all the others. And then you've got different math precision and you've got, the the uh what was it uh, creative computing all's benchmark uh he um he had one that did square root and it did multiplication and of course a four next loop and it was doing random and something else and it just checked to see if the random number generator was you know generating actually random seeming numbers but 
you're actually doing some real math or something so that, you know, if you actually do anything with it, you have some indication. I mean, here's their first benchmark. It has a REM statement, benchmark one. Print S, then 4K equal 1 to 1,000, then next K, and then print E, end. I mean, that's a benchmark, <laughs> for loop. Uh, and and they, um, then they have one with an if. Uh, so these are very primitive, very small benchmarks. These, these are ridiculously primitive. And one of them does A equal K divided by K plus K plus K minus K. You know, it's nothing. There's nothing that really does any anything serious. So, Simple addition and subtraction. Um, multiplication and division is as complicated as it gets for most of it. The last one has log and sign. Yeah, I mean that to me, like once again, that's the problem with doing benchmarks. I mean, even on the same hardware, you can benchmark basic nine versus disk basic. And it's a world of difference because that's sweet. You know, basically, has integers and byte value variables, and you know, some generally better optimized code as well because they didn't well, do a generic thing they're porting to every machine on you, the planet, like Microsoft. If did. you look at the TI ninety nine, everybody says, "Well, it's double interpreted basic, and it's going through the video chip to access RAM and all this other stuff." It's like, well, it's more than that. They did really high precision, more than anybody else, for their math. So. <laughs> It's yeah. like, well, you're calculating like 12 digits. I don't know. It was dumb. It was dumb. Yeah, like you're calculating more decimal points using floating point math. So, I mean, it depends. Like some people want, if you're if you're a math nerd, you may want all that precision to figure out, you know, how to draw a fractal better or something like that. But on the other hand, if you're writing an arcade game, like you basically most of the time just want integer math or long ints, and that's it. You don't need any of that stuff. So the benchmarks are not that useful. They weren't back then. They aren't now, as far as I'm concerned. Well, They're just Paul's kind of a very generalized thing. All's benchmark did a couple computations, and then it did a comparison between the initial value and the final value to see what the accuracy the, of the math library was. That was one of the things that it did that these others don't. It yeah, actually agreed. But for some people, precision. depending on the type of programs you're writing, that's totally useless. Oh, yeah. doesn't matter. And for others, it's critical. That, that's the thing. Benchmarks are... They're not really oh, all that useful, if, honestly. Well, <laughs> you know, the Aquarius may be low precision, but okay, yeah, it is faster. Yeah, give and take. At any rate, um, I, I don't know if Pedro responded. I haven't seen anything there. But uh, yeah, any of you that are watching this, if you tend to do some you know, shorter videos, like five minutes or less, um, let us know. Send us an email. Uh, Mark, do you have our Cocoa Talks email address, Andy? Always let me repost those. Well, say it out loud too for the audio listeners because they won't be able to see the chat. What we have audio listeners? Uh, uh, yeah, we yeah, do. You can I can't find uh, out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can always send us an email, and I think it's Coco Talk at Coco Talk Live. Yeah, so let 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 me know if uh, if it's okay for us to play your shorter videos in their entirety. Or if you'd prefer that we just give you the links that people come to your page. Like if you're worried about page views, then we definitely want to do that. I don't want to screw up your page count. So anyway, that is the end of the news this week. Oh, cue to wake up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, 
Any project updates? I don't have any on my list. Uh, none from me. I will. I guess I'll say one minor thing. Um, still working on the basic nine optimizations. I got it out to multiple beta testers. I got some emails, some questions from Wayne Campbell, for example, this morning. Uh, Jim Gary just went on a holiday for a week with his family. Actually, did find some old Cocoa Level One OS nine programs from Basic Nine that are actually crashing. Now, at this point, we didn't get enough time to go through various versions of EOU and even back to like the repository stuff to see a if this is a bug in Basic Nine or if it's a bug in the graphics engine because it's only happening when we're drawing lines of certain parts of certain games, and then B. Uh, is it the GFX module? Because I have done a few tweaks to that over the last four years. Or is it something that's been in there longer since you know the uh, 3.3 and 3.29 versions, et cetera? So I'll be seeing if I can get some time this weekend to try to track down at least where it's happening and then fix whatever's causing the problem. So that's part of the uh, EOU next release. I do want to be as bug-free as possible, obviously, for many reasons, including not too many complaints from you guys. So I will see if we can <laughs> fix all these first before we release. But uh, just to give you an update there, there is there has been a bug found. Still not sure exactly where it is. It's reproducible. Uh, it's ran on Jim's machine, did the same thing in mine. So uh, I'll be hunting that down, trying to fix it. I've also got a copy of the latest uh, control panel update from Fred Provence that I haven't had a chance to actually install and try running yet. So lots of testing to do before the release. But we're at the testing stage. We're getting close to the release date, I hope. Cool. So here, here's, else? here's my quick thing of the week. And my does it look like a circuit board? Can uh, you highlight them there, Mark? Yeah. yeah can it looks like a bunch of circuit boards. Oh well, yeah, here, here we go. We got your dosey dough to the left and your dosey dough to the right. And your dough <laughs> to the left. And your dosey dough to the right and uh, promenade and then everyone line up for serial numbers. And that's my week. Wow, they're just building themselves. Right? Gee, yeah. It's almost like you expect to sell these network cards. Well, I have it's like timeless. And then, oh, yeah. And then this is even better. Last time I tried to order these chips, they were like three months back ordered, and I just got some. So these are TI chips. So I think whoever, whatever fab actually makes TI chips might be shipping again. So happy, happy, joy, joy time. I did hear on one of the tech news podcasts this week that they said the chip shortage actually is starting to, sh to shrink back to normal. Because some chips are coming back out now. This is the trick. They, they you know, check here for notification when the chips are back in stock. But if you order four or five of them, you'll find out about a month before you'll get that notification that they're back in stock, that they're back in stock. <laughs> so I'm very happy to see that. And, uh, Life is good here in Wisconsin. Cool. Hopefully that'll help a lot of the projects that, you know, have fallen months behind because of hardware. Exactly. Exactly. TI is a big supplier. So if their stuff's showing back up, that's good news. Actually, just to throw it out the chat here too, uh, for Pedro and, and Frank and any of those people that are still around that actually deal with the hardware, have any of you guys noticed that certain suppliers are starting to come back online with parts and the shortages start to shrink? Is it, Industry-wide, is it just certain things that are starting to come back? I'm just kind of curious. Right. Certain things I ordered uh, came in, like uh, the uh, 16 megabit chips needed for two megabyte boomerangs uh, were now available again. Oh, yeah, Frank from Retro Rewind saying, yep, he's starting to see it too. So maybe the 
great chip shortage is finally starting to alleviate. Maybe uh, car manufacturers will be able to deliver their vehicles now. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> right, mine's 10 years old. I could use one. Now, I'm going to ask you, Rick, because Frank just put a second response into. I want to see if you're hitting the same thing. He says, the problem now is we're seeing shortages in things like caps and resistors instead of chips. The chips are coming in, but now the other parts are not. Because nobody's seeing... been ordering caps and resistors for the last six months because they didn't have any chips to sell. <laughs> <laughs> so you might find out and right now. Everybody, everybody put in orders and they're gone. Yeah. <laughs> Now he says deference. I don't know if that's supposed to say defense. Contractors have been scooping everything up. I'd say defense, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess with the war going on, you know, a lot of it's going to be disappearing to like Lockheed Martin, et cetera. So, because they'd be having money. So, darn, I was hoping maybe Nick could finally get his gun star with an MP3 player out. <laughs> up the gym yeah because that you like i've got your orchestra 90 test version of it where it actually has a sound pan to the side you're shooting at and exploding things at and you were going to combine that with an mp3 player for real-time music like we we're talking in the grabber sequence there earlier so i i would really like to see that but yeah it, it requires all the parts available at once <laughs> not just pieces yeah. in there Ken Waters, you you're involved somewhat with hardware. Uh, I, have you tried to order parts for anything lately, or you um, kind of got stuff? I haven't in stock? been ordering anything. No, not not, not a high uh, demand for capacitors, resistors, and chips up at the old cabin. No, not not a lot. That's that's a little too <laughs> modern for me out here. Maybe <laughs> fish and chips. That's what you get up there. You go fishing, grab some fish, get some fries, and away you go. There you go, <laughs> Curtis. Yep. I give you the award for lamest joke of the day. Oh, I, I've got the lamest <laughs> jokes for the year, I'm sure, at this point. Oh, uh, you aren't even in the running. Trust me. <laughs> 60 says, give me an 0603 or give me cake. I don't know what an 0603 is. Yeah, I think he's referring to the footprint size of a particular part. Okay. And then Frank says, Xilinx has killed PLCC. What is that? They did away with the PLCC uh, footprint chips. Hmm. So no, give me some. Yeah, it's that. Uh, so this chip with the pins that come on the side and then wrap around. Uh, no, so is that the yeah, one that Coco SCC uses? They can be soldered yeah. on or they can be socketed. Gimme is a PLCC. Yeah. They can be soldered on or they can be socketed the way they're designed. Okay. Because I know that's a complaint that several of the people that are manufacturing Cocoa SDCs, including Ed and Frank, and probably Richard before that, um, that, that was, those chips were getting impossible to get. So once the current stocks are gone, they can't make any more Cocoa Well, SDCs. Xilinx discontinued certain models anyway. So it's it might yeah. not just be PLCC. It might just be that, that be entire model. Well, from what Frank was saying, the, the the chip itself that the Coco SDC uses, you can still get a different packaging. You just can't get it in that form that the current. Right, but nobody was ordering the other packages while you can still get it. Ooh. It's that's that's my guess. 
Okay. Well, I'll let Frank, because Frank was talking about it on our drive to and from Boatfest there, and it sounded like that chip is still made in different packaging. Yeah, you no, just like said model flat, is still available. Yeah, they're so probably like switching to it. Yeah, the yeah. surface mount, so that yeah. you're you have to directly solder all. Because I know they've been trying to convince Darren Atkinson to let them change the design to use the surface mount style chips, so they can still make them. Because, like I said, after these run out, there's none left. Like you can't get them anymore. They haven't been made in years. So and the old stocks are now disappearing to the point where you can't get them. Period. So uh, unless we want to stop making Coke SDCs completely, uh, that's going to have well, to change. Is changing the design, is changing the footprint, changing the design, is that the presumption there? Logically, it wouldn't. Yeah, logically, changed. no, but physically, yes. But like physically, the board layout has to change. Oh, no one can change the board layout either. Yeah, okay. currently. So my, my understanding, yeah. Well, luckily, most of the surface mounts are smaller packages. They theoretically can make like a little printed circuit board. After they <laughs> yeah, but the spin out is slightly different, so it would move traces around. Yeah, well, you could do that on a little circuit board, but yeah, it'd be a hassle, but it could be done. Yeah, Frank's saying that that chip is currently QFP only, which stands for something, I'm sure. Quad flat pack. Okay. Quad well, and they said you can't change it per the agreement with Darren, so it's up to Darren to loosen that restriction so that we can start using the different packaging of the same chip it's the same chip so i i think he wanted people to use his board layout that way if there's any problems <laughs> right yeah, yeah that way if there's any know. problems you can just skip getting it because the chip will be yeah, nobody would like, complain to, to him about somebody's bad bad layout right. yeah I, I but that has to change because otherwise he's just discontinuing its own product otherwise it's done yeah exactly it'll right. be end of life period so hopefully he changes his mind on that and uh lets them use the uh, modern version or not modern but the, the still manufactured version of that chip programming should be the same because internally the uh the logic is the same it just has different connection points right it's just moving the pins around and yeah, and I should mention that because people who are on the audio only won't have a clue what Mark's responding to, but Sixy in chat Kieran says, uh, use a different footprint and you probably need to generate a different programming file. It sounds like because the chip itself internally is exactly the same, it's just the pinouts that change and the layout to put it on the board, but the programming shouldn't have to change at all. Right, but I some place like this, redrawing <laughs> the board is fraught with peril. You could really screw it up easily. It's all high-frequency stuff really close together. So I can see why he wouldn't want anyone just sort of drawing in a different footprint. And, oh, I'll move this pin over there and cross this over this. Ah, I'll just change the schematic and let it auto-route. Well, yeah, and let it auto-route. <laughs> all the way around the card and back around next Tuesday and come over the backside. And it'll be great. He's saying I would do it for him easily. Just need him to agree to the change. Right. And he's got a lot of experience doing that for the Amiga and stuff. So. I figure at some point he'll have a new layout. Hopefully. Yeah, because otherwise there won't be any Coco SDCs after a certain point, and that point's not too far off. From anybody. Different packages have different numbers. Go ahead, Mark. Packages have different pins on them. I was just saying, different packages have different pins on them. So if you're going from, a, well, I guess the quad flat pack, a lot of those are like 44 pin, which is 11 pins on a side. If you go to a package that has you know 20 on a side or 15, then of course things have to be reordered. So anyway, it could be done. 
Yeah, and it'll have to be at some point. Or somebody's going to have to create a, a their own clean room implementation of the Cocoa SCC. Right. That's the only other option. Or we can have another standard. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, no, it'd have to be compatible with, you know, to be able to run DMKs and stuff, it has to be compatible right. with. So mm -hmm. you'd have to basically clean room, re-implement it. All right. Uh, hopefully Ed and Frank can convince Darren of that uh, to solve that soon to be a supply problem. Would they add more drives? What? To the new one? Add more drives. Rocky Hill says, yes, play my videos. I don't care about the views. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, what do you mean add more drives to the It only SCC? supports two drives, uh, zero and one. Well, unless you're running DriveWire, then it actually supports four, I believe. But yeah. Well, without it. See, that, that's more of a firmware issue, I think. That's not really the design of the chip. Yeah, as I, I recall when I got my EdTasm Plus from uh, Robert. Robert Gall? Yeah, yeah Robert Gall. There's only, there's only four buffers. And so even if you use the other numbers, they're mod four. So if you use some other weird disk number, crap trashes one of the other buffers, you could cause some really bad things to happen. Have you encountered that, Nick? Because you actually use your EdTasm Plus Plus Rich uh, driveway. Oh, sorry. What was that? <laughs> Why are you on here just... for just napping the whole damn show? Come on. Keep <laughs> <laughs> some sleep. We, we need the Australian tax credits. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about Robert Galt's uh, EdTasm enhancements. Uh, Mark was mentioning that if you use the drive wire drives and you go past four, it actually causes some glitches and possible corruption is that right mark Am i, I think it's right? any floppies i think it's any floppies uh, there's only four buffers no matter what number you use so they're all mod four so if you're using eight it's really four i guess it starts at zero so if you're using seven it's really three so if you use two different drive numbers but they happen to be the same modulus there you corrupt you can get corrupted buffers mm. i haven't had uh, any corruptions uh, do you use drive numbers bit. beyond three though like zero to three not beyond three no no i only use the standard ones ah so you wouldn't encounter this bug then no 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 i just stick within the standards stretch the standards expect problems <laughs> pretty well, sure now you're just talking like sense man. what's up with that right that's a sensible <laughs> talk here you mean like a, a six, 16 quart mpi yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll let David Ladd do the testing for that. He can corrupt all of his images running like 5,000 disk images on a... Did you see the picture of the MPI into the MPI? Yeah, wasn't that from when Danny did that live on our show? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it actually worked, which to everybody's surprise. Well, it didn't smoke anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because she actually powered the whole At thing on. on camera. Like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's I'm thinking if it wouldn't have been an issue, it just wouldn't... They wouldn't be able to select things on the second pack. I did like the whole Escher look of the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, all, all our jaws dropped when we saw him doing that live. It was more shock and horror, I think, because something's going <laughs> to yeah, smoke here for sure. Something's <laughs> going to smoke here for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quite sure. I'm quite surprised that Coco came through unscathed on that one, to be honest. 120 years <laughs> of multi packs dead, all on the splash. <laughs> 
<laughs> what would have been coolest if you would have let off a smoke bomb or something? <laughs> yeah, a dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else to go over today? Nothing for me. I don't know if there's any updates, acquisitions, or general comments here from anybody else. You, but if not, guys, we'll go to the outro. Did you guys see the um, war game that I um, posted about? And then uh, I think. No, Ron did you was, want to do a Ron's Garage segment? No, we don't have to. I'm just going to say, I just wondered if you guys saw it and um, ever tried the game. It's, it's pretty, it's not even a game. It can run by itself or you can play against the computer, I guess. Oh, yeah. The James Garon. Uh, little game pack on cassette right that's what you're talking about those six card games whatever it is and wars no this is it's just called war and um yeah it's part of his game pack if i remember that oh was it yeah i I never saw it that way yeah because war basically you just you overturn a card and if it's higher than your opponents and you win that hand and you just keep on that course you can it literally is just pure chance there's no you have you have a level at which uh the game is won and if you make it 52 because of 52 cards it can play for an hour almost (laughs) Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, somebody. Noticed, you mention, I think I did see that actually. Yeah, somebody noticed that when you list the game, it goes down to six thousand and then um, stops on the Coco three, Coco mm-hmm. one and two. It goes all the way down to the bottom, but um, there's print mm-hmm. lines at the bottom or something. It was screwy. I don't know. Yeah, that ties into Alan Huffman's thing about the right embedding graphics into the print lines, right? So they show up as uh, basic tokens if you don't fix something. Right. Yeah. Just that interesting thing. And heck, all I was doing is just showing up an interesting game. You know, <laughs> it, it, because I don't play games much, when I find a game that plays by itself like Castle or Perfect. Castle Guard, yeah, it's awesome. Look at that. Computer's <laughs> running. It's, it's making noises. That's awesome. <laughs> I will mention Ron too. I usually don't mention any of this stuff on your page because you have your own segment. So anytime you want to come in and uh, I don't know stuff you did the previous week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever you want. Yeah, because uh, if I'm on, you can just say, uh, you know, expand on this like you do with everybody else. So I, I don't mind. Yeah, but you actually have a dedicated segment for you. So anytime you want to talk, yeah. like if you want to do it every two weeks to catch up the last two weeks worth of stuff or yeah. a month or whatever, go okay. for it. Okay, that's cool. Because you know your stuff a lot better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's weird. That's why. <laughs> it's strange. Oh, no, it's, it's not necessarily weird. I mean, you do a yeah, lot of no. stuff like pictures and digitizations and you know, yeah. throwing a bit of WeFax here and there so we can play yeah, bingo. All, all the fringe stuff. Drink. <laughs> well, WeFax scrolls across the page down here at the bottom. Yeah, yeah that's we're going right now as I'm looking. Ah. <laughs> Thank you, guys, right. by the way. Here's the outro. This concludes another episode of Coco Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calor computer, MC10, and Dragon systems. For all things Coco Talk, visit us on the web at cocotalk.live. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live. Consider supporting the show with a purchase of merchandise from our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, click on the Patreon link on our website, cocotalk.live. Cocotalk would not exist without the community, its cast, crew, and contributors. Thanks go to Alan Murphy, Amigos Retro Gaming, Bill Noble, Brian Joyce, Brian Weaver, Curtis Boyle, D. Bruce Moore, Danny O'Connor, David Lang, 
Eric Canales, George Jansen, Grant Leedy, James Diffendapper, Jason Reichert, Jim Brain, Ken Reichert, Ken Waters, Mark Bosley, Mark Overholzer, Mikey Furman, Mr. Dave 6309, Nick Morentes, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Paul Fiscarelli, Richard Lorbieski, Rick Adams, Rick Eulin, Rob Inman, Ron Delvaux, Samuel Gimes, Sloopy Malibu, Steve Bjork, Terry Steggy, Tom C., and many, many more. Please help support the Coco community. A list of various contributors and resources are available at imacoconut.com. That's I-M-A-C-O-C-O-N-U-T.com. The original Cocoa Talk theme song is copyright 2008 by D. Bruce Moore and Greg Sheeler. The new Cocoa Talk theme song is copyright 2020 by D. Bruce Moore. Both are mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. Coco forever! send you guys some boat fest picks there with the cocoa in their background to throw into the the roll up reel there are you sure curtis yes why are you positive curtis we're actually Is using it? a video loop Push. for the community slides because uh obs does flips them around and does weird stuff with the straight pictures so where, where should I submit them if I send you a couple? Uh, just put them in the same place. Uh, uh, Steve will have to make a new uh, community slide video. Video. Okay, by same place. That's the Google Drive or something? I haven't done it. Yeah, there's, there's a community slides uh, folder on, on the Google Drive. Okay. Google make Drive. a note of that so I don't forget. Okay. Shall we push the button? Sure. Killer Frank. Push it. Push it good. Get get David to do send push it, it out. Long time. Mm. Oh really? <laughs> David. Goodbye. Bye, Bye everyone. Next week.